a difficult word to find the right word for in English in its most comprehensive sense. Al-Hukum, you could say, of course, is ruling, is legislation, but it's... Uh, It's something more than that. In fact, al-hukm is three things with relating or relating to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, judging or ruling or legislating is of three types when it comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The first is al-hukm al-kawni al-qadari. The first is Allah Azza wa Jal decreeing in His Qadr and His Qada, determining and deciding who will be given and who will be withheld from, who will be rich and who will be poor, who will be happy and who will be sad. Who will be from the people of Jannah and who will be from the people of Jahannam wal-Iyadu Billah? This legislation or ruling or judgment belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. Nobody else decides this except Allah azza wa jal. Nobody else legislates this Except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Who will be rich, who will be poor Who will be happy, who will be sad Who will be given Authority and who will not be given authority All of this is in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And this is the first type And the second one is Al-hukm Al-dini Al-hukm Al-shara'i Al-dini the second one is al-hukm al-shara'i al-dini and that is Allah's right to decide or to 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 judge what will be halal and what will be haram what will be halal and what will be haram and what will be part of the religion of Islam and its laws and what will be Forbidden in the religion of Islam. Only Allah Azza wa Jal decides this. In al hukmu illa lillah. Amara an la ta'budu illa iya. Legislation is only for Allah. Meaning the legislation here in Islam. Because Allah said, Amara an la ta'budu illa iya. He commanded you that you only worship Him. Therefore, deciding in the religion which things are halal and which things are haram and which things will be allowed and which things will not be and which things will be part of Islam and which things will be alien to Islam. That is only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the third is al-hukm al-jaza'i. And that is the ruling or the judgment of reward. 
who will be rewarded with Jannah and who will be punished with Jahannam? Who will be punished in the grave and who will be saved from that punishment? Who will be given some trial on the day of judgment and then become from the people of Jannah and who will be put immediately into Jahannam? That is the judgment of reward, of who gets rewarded and who gets punished. The judgment of reward and punishment is only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is in opposition to what the Khawarij said in these three categories. Because the Khawarij made this statement absolute. That nobody has the right to judge anything in any way or to make any rule for anyone except that they are a mushrik kafir. This is the statement of the Khawarij. So they said that when somebody puts a speed limit on the road, Allah is kafir. He is kafir. He made a rule other than what Allah Azza wa Jal revealed. And this is different to what Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah said. And it's different to what Allah Azza wa Jal said in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us about the husband and wife who are arguing. If you fear some dispute between them, make someone to judge from their side and someone to judge from his side and someone to judge from her side. And Allah Azza wa Jal said regarding the hadi or regarding the the punishment for the uh, regarding the punishment for for hunting in ihram let two people who are just among you rule or judge as to which animal should be offered in sacrifice as a penalty for hunting in ihram so these are clear examples of when Allah Azza wa Jal commands us to judge. To make a judgment from ourselves. And no one from the scholars of Islam, the well established in knowledge, said that it is haram for a person to put rules and regulations and you know, by laws and whatever, providing they do not contradict the laws of Islam. Rather, what Ahl Sunnah said is the meaning of inil hukmu illa lillah is in three things. First of all, the judgment of Qadr, what will happen and what will not. Secondly, the judgment of Islam, what will be halal and what will be haram. What will be halal and what will be haram. And thirdly, in the judgment of reward and punishment, who will be rewarded and who will be punished. And that is why when the Khawarij said to Ali ibn Abi Talib, Inil hukmu illa lillah, judging is only for Allah. They meant by this that Ali was kafir because he judged or he, ha he agreed to judgment or settlement between himself and Muawiyah radiallahu anhumah. He allowed for 
two people to judge on their behalf and to come to an agreement, to come to a settlement. They said to him that he had disbelieved, you have left Islam, because judging is only for Allah. He said, كَلِمَةُ حَقٍ أُرِيدَ بِهَا بَاطِلٍ He said, what you have said is true in the sense that judging is only for Allah. But what you intend by it is false. Your intention is false, your, your statement is true. Your statement is true. In a hukm illa lillah. Hukm is only for Allah. But what you intend by it, i.e. making takfir of the Muslims and telling people that it's not allowed for people to come to settlements and it's not allowed for people to make judgments and it's not allowed for people to make rules, then this is something false. So we just wanted to expand on the fact that Al-Hakim affirms Al-Hikmah for Allah, wisdom, and it affirms Al-Hukm, which is judgment or legislation, the right to judge, which is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in those things that we mentioned. The Shaykh goes on, rahimahullah ta'ala, to talk about affirming the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he's going to go through a number of attributes of Allah. And the first of them that he begins with is Al-Ilm. Affirming knowledge for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Already we had spoken about the ayah, وَهُوَ الْعَلِيمُ hakim He is Al-Alim. The all-knowledgeable, Al-Hakim. And as we've talked about the meaning of Al-Hakim just now. So he began with the second ayah from Surah Saba. يَعْلَمُ مَا يَلِجُ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَمَا يَخْرُجُ مِنْهَا وَمَا يَنْزِلُ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ وَمَا يَعْرُجُ فِيهَا He knows what enters into the earth and what comes out of it. And what descends from the heavens and what rises up into them or through them. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَعِنْدَهُ مَفَاتِحُ الْغَيْبِ لَا يَعْلَمُهَا إِلَّا هُوْ وَيَعْلَمُ مَا فِي الْبَرِّ وَالْبَحْرِ وَمَا تَسْقُطُ مِنْ وَرَقَةٍ إِلَّا يَعْلَمُهَا وَلَا حَبَّةٍ فِي ظُلُمَاتِ الْأَرْضِ وَلَا رَطَبٍ وَلَا يَابِسٍ إِلَّا فِي كِتَابٍ مُبِينٍ To Allah belong the keys of the unseen. Nobody knows them except Him. And He knows what is in the land and the sea. And no leaf falls except that He knows it. And no seed in the darkness of the night, nor anything living or anything inanimate, except that it is in a clear record. And the statement of Allah Azawajal, وَمَا تَحْمِلُ مِنْ أُنثَى وَلَا تَضَعُ إِلَّا بِعِلْمِهِ No woman carries a child, nor does she give birth to one except by his knowledge. And the statement of Allah Azawajal, لِتَعْلَمُوا أَنَّ اللَّهَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٌ وَأَنَّ اللَّهَ قَدْ أَحَاطَ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ عِلْمًا That you may know that Allah is able to do all things and that Allah has encompassed everything with His knowledge. And the statement of Allah Azawajal, إِنَّ اللَّهَ هُوَ الرَّزَّاقُ ذُلُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ هُوَ الرَّزَّاقُ ذُلْ قُوَّةِ الْمَتِينَ 
perhaps this is out of its uh, out of its place you know. we spoke about knowledge last mm. time in some detail anyways we spoke about most of these ayat last time but the key thing here is that the sheikh has now began speaking about various attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the first one that he has began with is the knowledge of Allah that encompasses every single thing and that knowing that Allah has encompassed everything with his knowledge and knowing Allah through his names and attributes is one of the fundamental purposes behind our creation. This is the most important thing that we take from this part and I think we, we touched upon it in some detail last time. And the statement of Allah and the statement of Allah the Shaykh then begins with the affirmation of hearing and sight for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the first ayah that he mentions regarding affirming hearing and sight is the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٌ وَهُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْبَصِيرُ And we've spoken about this ayah We've spoken about this ayah before. And that this ayah negates there being anything similar to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or anything which shares the attributes of Allah in the way that it applies to Allah and yet Allah is Samir. Al-Sami'ah, Al-Basir, the one who hears everything and the one who sees everything. And then the Shaykh mentioned the second ayah or part of it, How excellent is what Allah reminds you of. Indeed, Allah is always Sami'an Basira hearing everything and seeing everything and we should notice and take note we should take note that knowledge that knowledge and hearing and sight are all attributes which human beings have. Human beings have knowledge and human beings can hear and human beings can see. But the knowledge of human beings is not like the knowledge of Allah. And the sight of human beings is not like the sight of Allah. And the hearing of human beings is not like the hearing that we affirm for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala.
those who want more detail or if we want more detail on these names can refer to the um, the very detailed explanation that we do every Friday, every other Friday on the names of Allah Azza wa Jal where we have covered the detailed meaning of As-Sami' and the detailed meaning of Al-Basir uh, we've done these on a, f a recent, very very recently on a, I think maybe the, the last session that we did on the names of Allah the last two sessions were As-Sami' and Al-Basir so inshallah we can go back to them in that place inshallah the Sheikh then goes on to talk about two attributes which we affirm for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The first is Al-Mashi'a and the second is Al-Irada. Now it's very, very, very important. Or in fact I'm going to put in a third because it comes after that anyway. And it's important that we understand these is a little bit complicated and where a lot of people make mistakes and the third is al-mahabba so i'm using arabic terms for now because as soon as we put them into english we've already classified them and classifying them is half of the problem so we have al-mashi'a and we have al-irada and we have al-mahabba so if you wish and you're making notes, draw two circles that overlap. With, so that they overlap in half and half. So there's a, a bit in the middle which both circles overlap. Yeah. Not one inside the other. Yeah, I need two circles that overlap each other. So there is a bit outside and there's a bit inside. In one of the outside bits that doesn't overlap with anything, write Mashi'a. I know I'm not giving you English words right now, but it's any Mashi'a as in Masha'Allah. In the other part of the circle that doesn't overlap, We write mahabba, love. And in the middle, where the two circles overlap, we write irada. I'll give you some rough English words just to help you out. For Mashia, we'll write will. Will. W-I-L-L. Will. For mahabba, we'll write love. And for irada, we'll write want. Now this overlap here is an overlap not to do with what happens, but to do with definitions. This, this diagram that I've given you, I've described to you, is to do with definitions. And this caused the Mu'tazila and the Qadariya and a whole bunch of other people so many problems because they could not understand 
the differences and the similarities between these three words. Allah affirmed for himself in the Quran al mashiah i.e. Allah, what Allah, what, what Allah, what have I said to you? Did I say to you wills? I want to use the same word, otherwise I will get it. I will use Allah. What Allah wills to happen. Okay. What Allah Azza wa wills to happen. And al-Mashi'ah is that which is related to Qadr. And in other words, what Allah Azza wa Jal wills to happen, will happen. And the, probably the best summary of this is the poetry of Imam al-Shafi'i when he said, مَا شِئْتَ كَانَ وَإِنْ لَمْ أَشَأْ وَمَا شِئْتُ إِنْ لَمْ تَشَأْ لَمْ يَكُنْ خَلَقْتَ الْعِبَادَ عَلَى مَا عَلِمْتَ وَفِي الْعِلْمِ يَجْرِي الْفَتَى وَالْمُسِنُ عَلَى ذَا مَنَنْتَ وَهَذَا خَذَلْتَ وَهَذَا أَعَنْتَ وَذَا لَمْ تُعِنْ فَمِنْهُمْ شَقِيٌّ وَمِنْهُمْ سَعِيدٌ وَمِنْهُمْ قَبِيحٌ وَمِنْهُمْ حَسَنٌ He said, مَا شِئْتَ كَانَ وَإِنْ لَمْ أَشَأْ Whatever you will, O Allah, will happen, even if I don't will it. Whatever you will, O Allah, will happen even if I don't will it. Sheikh Abdul Razak al-Badr, Hafizahullah, or Sheikh who we are mostly yani, following his explanation of Al-Aqid al-Wasitiyah in this class. The Sheikh, he said, I looked at the number of places that Al-Mashi'ah comes in the Quran and it comes in around 400 ayat. MashaAllah. And we often actually misunderstand the word MashaAllah. We think that MashaAllah is what you say when you just like, you know, like get happy at something. Oh, MashaAllah, MashaAllah. MashaAllah means whatever Allah has willed. Meaning if Allah has willed to give it to me, He will give it to me. If Allah has willed not to give it to me, He will not give it to me. If Allah has willed the person I'm looking at to keep it, He will keep it. If Allah has willed the person I'm looking at that he will not keep it, he will not keep it. If Allah has willed for me good health, he will give me good health. If Allah has willed for me sickness, he will give me sickness. Ma sha Allah. Ma here, for those of you who are studying Arabic, means alladhi. Yani alladhi sha Allah. The only thing that happens is what Allah Azza wa wills. And not a single breath, not a single movement, not a single action, not a single thought takes place in this universe, in any single place, except that it happens by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is Al-Mashiyah. On the other side, we have Al-Mahabbah. Al-Mahabba is what Allah Azza wa Jal loves.
And if you wish, you can draw another two circles with the same shape again, overlapping. And in this one, again, Mashia goes in one side and Mahabba goes in the other one. Yani will goes on one side and love goes on the other side. And will and love this time go in the middle. So another two circles. On one side, will. On one side, love. And in the middle, will plus love. And this one is not relating to definition, this one is relating to Qadr. This one is relating to the divine decree. So we try and explain again. When we talk about the love of Allah, does Allah love anything evil? Clearly not. Allah only loves that which is good. وَلَا يَرْضَى لِعِبَادِهِ الْكُفْرِ Allah is not happy for his servants. He does not, is not content for his servants to disbelieve. Look in the world. The majority of them are disbelievers. The majority of Bani Adam are not Muslim. That means that in terms of Qadr, what Allah loves sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't happen. What Allah loves sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't happen. Okay, when does what Allah loves happen? When will and love come together. When will and love come together, then what Allah loves happens. When will is on its own, then something happens that Allah does not love. When love is on its own, there is something that Allah loves that does not happen. So let's give a simple example of each one. The Iman of Abu Bakr. The Iman of Abu Bakr. Radiallahu an. Does Allah love Iman? Yes. Okay, so we tick the box for love. Did Abu Bakr have Iman? Yes. Therefore, this is an example in the middle category of something where Allah Azza wa Jal loves it and wills it to happen. Something where Allah Azza wa Jal loves it and wills it to happen. Okay. The Iman of Abu Jahl the Iman of Abu Jahl where are we going to put this one we have to put this one in the category of love but not will because it didn't happen Allah loves Iman but Abu Jahl did not believe therefore this is an example of something that Allah Loved to happen, but did not will to happen. The disbelief of Abu Jahl. 
the disbelief of Abu Jahl. Did Allah love it to happen? No. Allah did not love it to happen. Did it Allah will it to happen? Yes. Therefore, this goes in the category of will but not love. So if you drew that diagram, you have love and you have will and you have love and will. Underneath will, you have the disbelief of Abu Jahl. Underneath love, you have the belief of Abu Jahl. And underneath love and will, you have the belief or the iman of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu. The burning question that this leads to is why would Allah Azza wa Jal will something that he doesn't love? And why is it not the case that the two circles are directly on top of each other? Why is it not the case that Allah Azza wa Jal wills everything that he loves and loves everything that he wills? And the answer to that is Al-Hikmah wal-Adl Wisdom and Justice Allah Azza wa Jal loves all of us to believe Would you be content for Abu Lahab to be next to you in Jannah? Would that be fair? And after he disbelieved in the Prophet ﷺ and said Tabban lak And may you perish would you be content for him to be your neighbor in Jannah? Would you say that's fair? Would you say it's fair for the person who spends their whole life disobeying Allah and disbelieving in Allah Azza wa Jal to be given the same place as the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in Jannah? La Allah. So Allah Azza wa Jal from his perfect wisdom has chosen that there will be things that he loves that he will not will and things that he wills that he will not love but Allah does not will anything for evil's sake and Allah does not will anything for no reason there is nothing the disbelief of Abu Jahl has perfect justice and wisdom it's not like Allah Azza wa Jal just randomly decided, okay, he's going to believe and he's going to disbelieve. No, he knew what was in the heart of Abu Bakr and his qadr was true and just and wise to what was in his heart. And he knew what was in the heart of Abu Jahl and his qadr, the qadr of Allah Azza wa Jal was just and true to the circumstance in that case. But you must distinguish because if you don't, you will end up either from the Qadariyah or the Mu'tazila or one of the other groups who ended up leaving Islam because of this. Or, or this was one of the issues why they left Islam. Because they could not get this into their head. It is really not that difficult. There are things that Allah loves and things that Allah wills. Sometimes there's an overlap. It's that simple. There are things Allah loves. There are things Allah wills. 
and sometimes there's an overlap. Allah loves nothing but good. Allah does not love kufr. Allah does not love disobedience. Allah does not love fisk, defiance. Allah does not love people to follow the shaitan. Allah loves iman and good deeds. But Allah wills whatever He wants. MashaAllah. Including things He doesn't love. For a wisdom that is with Him, subhanahu wa ta'ala, and justice. For a wisdom and and uh, for a wisdom that is with him and justice. Back to the original two circles, which is the definition. We are now left with al irada. So we defined what love is, and we defined what mashia or will is. But we're left with al irada. And where people went wrong when it came to irada or want is they understood it to either be one of the other two. And actually, sometimes al-irada means will, and sometimes al-irada means love. For example, I give an example in English. If I say to you, Allah wanted... I'm going to use the word want. Allah wanted Abu Jahl to disbelieve. In this case, I'm speaking about which category? Will. Not love. Okay. Allah wants all of us to believe. Now I'm speaking about love. So the word will only means will. And if you want to know what is from the will of Allah, everything that happens is from the will of Allah. And love is only good things, whether it happens or not. As for want, irada, want, want can be this or it can be that. And that's why people get confused, especially the Mu'tazila, because they read want to mean one of those two. And so they got themselves confused by saying that want always means love or want always means the decree, any will. But actually, want can sometimes mean love and sometimes mean will, exactly as I said to you. Allah wanted Abu Jahl to disbelieve. Allah wanted Abu Jahl to disbelieve, i.e. Allah willed Abu Jahl to disbelieve. Allah wants us all to believe, meaning Allah loves us all to believe. And so want can be here or there. And hopefully this will be further explained as we go into the ayat. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, 
ولولا إذ دخلت جنتك قلت ما شاء الله لا قوة إلا بالله if only when you entered your garden i this is the statement of the people of the two go- of the the two people of the, the people of the two gardens in surah al-kahf if only when you entered your garden you said ma sha allah and you did not say this is from myself you did not say that this will ma avunnu anta bida hadhihi abada i don't think this will ever ever leave me but you said this came ma sha allah and this as long as Allah wills to give it to me, He will give it to me. And when Allah wills to take it away from me, He will take it away from me. Because this is the will of Allah He gives to whoever He wants and He takes from whoever He wants. La quwwata illa billah. There is no power for the servant to achieve anything except by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except from with the decree of Allah azza wa jal with the mashia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and uh, the scholars take from this ayah that Allah is the preferred way of removing what's the word self-contentment and for the evil eye, it's better that you say Allahumma barik or Allahumma barik lahu or, or barakallahu fihi or something. But for removing self, being impressed with yourself or being impressed with others, al-ujub. When you feel like just impressed with something, like you look and just think, you know, like you feel impressed with yourself, like oh, look at how much knowledge, look at how strong, look at how healthy, look at how rich, you say, MashaAllah. Whatever came to me, it came to me by the will of Allah. Whatever goes away from me will go away from me by the will of Allah. And there's no doubt that believing in the Mashiach of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as we said, it's about 400 times mentioned in the Quran, is something so important the Quran doesn't repeat Allah in the Quran does not repeat anything that is not important it's so important because it changes your whole life your whole perspective on life whether it is running after you know like people whether it is people running after wealth and status whether it is people crying over the deal, the business deal that they lost, whether it is people, you know, running after children or worrying why they don't have any children or, you know, so on and so forth, all of these different things. See, the reality is that just by saying, Masha Allah, you can change your whole life because you realize that this word, Masha Allah, affirms that whatever happens to you was never going to miss you. And whatever missed you was never ever going to happen to you. This is in the hands of Allah And it puts you into a state where you're desperately in need of Allah. And that's the essence of worship. Worship in its essence is lowering yourself and humbling yourself 
and submitting yourself before Allah. When you say MashaAllah, you demonstrate that you know your need for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That I, I need Allah so much. Because I have an intention that today I'm going to complete X, Y, Z. And today I'm going to complete such and such and such and such and such and such. But wallah, if Allah doesn't will it to happen, I will not be able to complete even one part of that. How many people set out from their house to do a job, to go on a road, and they end up taking the other road and going on another thing? Sometimes for what is better for them and sometimes, subhanAllah, for what is going to bring them the anger of Allah Azza wa Jal. You need Allah in everything that you do. Look at what happened to Qarun when he said, I was only given this wealth because of how knowledgeable I am in myself. Allah swallowed up or caused the earth to swallow him up. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused the earth to swallow him up. What happened to the person in the garden when he said, I never think this garden will ever leave me. It's, you know, my own, look at how excellent I am. Allah destroyed his garden. So mashallah is essential for you to fulfill your ibadat and essential for you to be able to fulfill your, uh, your needs uh, and your, your hopes and your dreams in the dunya. And it's a word of success, honestly. It's a word of success. It's a word of, you know, subhanAllah, it's one of the Islamic keys to success in the dunya. You know, achieving your aims. You all have aims in the dunya. None of us have no aims in the dunya. Yani we have aims, whether it's some business, whether it's some education, whether it's, you know, family or children. You have some, we have some aims, we have some desires. And when we understand the meaning of the Mashiach of Allah, MashaAllah, then it's by that that we can achieve those desires, inshaAllah. By realizing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that controls this. So how many of us go running around and from <laughs> from one side of the earth to the other side of the earth to fulfill something that if we came for Salatul Fajr and asked Allah for it, He would have given it to us. And that doesn't mean that you don't run out and do things. You have to go and do stuff. You have to do al-fi'l bil-asbab. But there are two errors when it comes to at-tawakkul. One, and this is the most common, or one, maybe I don't know whether it's the most common, but there, one, of the, one of them is for people to say, I'm just doing everything I can. You say to him, Habib, why are you not in the masjid? He says, well, my, my job is really tough at the moment. I'm struggling with my job. You know, like, hey, I'm going to work really hard. I need a promotion. My boss doesn't give me time off work. This person has forgotten Allah and attached themselves completely to worldly asbab, causes of things to happen. And then you get the one who is al-mutawakil. And he is, has tawakul and not tawakkul. And he sat at home saying, and he, it's all right, I'm making dua. 
When Allah wills, He will give me a job. But we do neither this nor that. We go out and do the reasons that, that, that achieve us what we want, but we realize, mashallah, it will only happen by the Mashiach of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It will only happen by the decree of Allah, by the will of Allah, with the help of Allah. There is no ability for any of us, wallahi. No ability to move, no ability to get Jannah, no ability to get saved from Jahannam, except by the help of Allah azawajal. Except by seeking help. And bi isti'ana, bi isti'anatin billahi subhanahu wa ta'ala. By seeking help from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the second ayah the Shaykh mentioned, وَلَوْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ مَقْتَتَلُوا وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يَفْعَلُوا مَا يُرِيدُ And this ayah is a refutation of the Mu'tazila and the Qadariyya who said that when we do sins, they said, when we do sins, Allah willed for us not to do them and we did them anyway. تَعَالَ اللَّهَ عَمَّا يَقُولُونَ عُلُوًا كَبِيرًا and in reality, they made other gods besides Allah. They made every human being a god besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When they said that Allah azza wa jal willed and decreed for you not to sin, and then you willed and decreed to sin, so your will and decree overcame the will and decree of Allah azza wa jal. Ta'ala Allah amma yaqulun. High is Allah above what they say. What an evil thing to say about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But what did Allah azza wa jal say? And if Allah had willed, they would not have fought each other. And if Allah had willed, they would not have fought each other. Fighting each other, is that an action of Allah or an action of the servants? It's an action of the servants. If it's an action of the servants, then Allah azza wa jal just said, that no action of the servant happens except by the will of Allah You decided, you have a mashi'ah, you have a, a will. لِمَنْ شَاءَ مِنْكُمْ أَنْ يَسْتَقِيمُ For the one of you who wants to stand straight and you try to, you have a desire, you want to fight. وَلَوْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ مَقْتَتَلُ But if Allah doesn't will, you will not fight. And if Allah wills, you will fight. So you realize that whatever you decision you make, you need Allah to help you to fulfill the good and to keep you away from the bad. And if it were not for the decree of Allah or for the will of Allah, they would not have fought. But Allah does what He wants. Okay. Allah does what He wants. Everyone give themselves a quick mental test. Want here. Does it mean will? Or love? Don't answer, just keep it in your head. Give yourself 10 seconds to think about it. And if Allah had willed, they would not have fought one another. But Allah does what He wants. Have a think about it. If you got it right, it should be that want here refers to will. Because Allah is not talking about what He loves. Does Allah love for Ahlul Kitab to fight each other and break up into sects and groups? No, Allah does not love you to break up into sects and groups. But Allah decreed for it to happen. He willed for it to happen. So Al-Irada here means Al-Mashi'ah.
In the next ayah, the Sheikh mentioned, "Uhillat lakum bahimatul an'ami illa ma yutla alaykum ghayra muhill al-sayd wa antum hurum inna Allah yahkum ma yurid." We've covered this ayah in Surah Al-Maidah in our Tafsir class, but just at the end, indeed Allah legislates what He wants. Okay, another test. I'll give you five seconds, ten seconds to think about it. Allah legislates. Allah mentioned the halal and the haram. And then Allah said, He legislates what He wants. So tell me now, this, this want, is it what Allah wills or what Allah loves? If you got this right, this one is what Allah loves. Because it's speaking about what Allah Azza wa Jal, the worship that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed for you. Will everybody refrain from eating pigs? Will everybody refrain from killing animals in ihram? Or killing hunting animals in ihram? No. Not everybody will refrain from doing so. However, Allah Azza wa Jal has made some things halal for you that he loves. Inna Allah Ma yurid, Allah legislates for you that which he loves. Any want here means what he loves, not what he has decreed. And yet Allah does not legislate something for you in Islam that is evil. And this ayah is a proof that Allah does not legislate something for you in Islam that is evil, not even out of his decree. And yet everything in Islam is beautiful and pure, and good, and everything in Islam, Allah Azza wa Jal loves it. Allah Azza wa Jal said, and the next ayah the Shaykh mentioned, فَمَنْ يُرِدِ اللَّهُ أَنْ يَهْدِيَهُ يَشْرَحْ صَدَرَهُ لِلْإِسْلَامِ وَمَنْ يُرِدَ أَنْ يُضِلَّهُ يَجْعَلْ صَدَرَهُ طَيِّقًا حَرَجًا كَأَنَّمَا يَصَعَّدُ فِي السَّمَاءِ Whoever Allah wants to guide, he opens his chest to Islam. And in Shirah al-Sadr, and he said, I find it to be one of the most beautiful expressions in Arabic, but it's difficult to explain in English. But I guess perhaps uh, the best way is to explain the opposite, which is to, to feel like pressure on your chest. When you feel pressure on your chest, like you just can't do anything, and you feel like somebody is squeezing you, you just feel like pressured and you can't breathe properly or you you can't you can't relax the opposite of that is inshirah as-sadr and for you just to feel like okay i can breathe i feel good that's what allah azza wa jal does he opens up your chest to accept islam to make islam feel beautiful how many people wallah i get emails from people saying to me I find Islam so hard I find Islam like crushing me from the inside I can't do it I, I can't do it I want to leave or whatever subhanAllah people in this situation but the one who Allah is blessed and it's only a blessing from Allah mashallah that Allah has made Islam easy for you he's made inshirah al-sadr and he's made your chest expansive open and you feel like Islam is something easy, something doable, something enjoyable, something and that gives you, it doesn't feel like a pressure on you.
ومن يرد أن يضله يجعل صدره ضيقا حرجا and whoever he wants to misguide he makes his chest ضيق he makes it constricted حرجا and he's like in a state of, of حرج he's in a state of you know, a state of discomfort, a state of hardship. As if he was being propelled through the sky. And this is one of the, and subhanAllah, one of the miracles of the Quran in the description. Because I mean, how anyone can know what it, is, what it is to be propelled through the sky at the time the Qur'an was revealed except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the, the force, that like, like Allah azza wa jal describes it, like the G-force that crushes the body of the, you know, the pilot that is going extremely fast or the astronaut that is going extremely fast. As he's being pushed up through the heavens, the force that is crushing the body, that's what Allah azza wa jal describes the uh, the example of the chest of the person that Allah has closed their chest to Islam as though the force of the atmosphere as though the force of ascending through the atmosphere was crushing their chest okay the irada here what Allah wants is it what Allah wills or what Allah loves Whoever Allah wants to guide, he opens his chest to Islam. And whoever Allah wants to misguide, he makes his chest constricted and full of discomfort until as though he was being propelled through the sky. This is what Allah wills. Because as for what Allah loves, he loves for everyone's heart to be open to Islam. He loves for everyone's chest to be open to Islam. But Allah has only willed it for some of his servants out of wisdom and out of justice. Um, the Shaykh then continues to talk about the love of Allah uh, because the Shaykh is bringing the three together. And as we said, definition-wise, Mashia has a clear definition. That is what Allah wills. And that is what happens. And if what Allah wills is very simply what happens. And what Allah loves has a very clear definition. Everything that Allah has told us in the Quran that is good, or everything that Allah has told us that He loves, or anything in the Sunnah that the Prophet loved, or anything in the Sunnah the Prophet told us that Allah loves, all of that is what Allah loves. And this irada, as we said, is in the middle. It sometimes means this, and it sometimes means that. And in terms of qadr, the two may come together, or the two may come separately. And it may be the case that neither of them come. Neither love nor will. So what would be the scenario we did Abu Bakr and Abu Jahl? What would be the scenario that neither of them come, the kufr of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu arda. Because Allah did not like it to happen, and Allah did, not, Allah did not love it to happen, Allah did not will it to happen. So this is an example of something which is neither will nor love. Yani Allah did not will it, and Allah did not love it. Walillah alhamd.
So the Shaykh goes on to talk about the love of Allah Notice that Mashia and Irada that is will and want and love are also all attributes that human beings have. We have a will. Allah said, لِمَنْ شَاءَ مِنْكُمْ أَيَّسْتَقِيمُ For the one of you that wills to be an upright Muslim. And we have a want. We can want things. I want this to happen. I want that to happen. But only Allah Azza wa Jal is فَعَالٌ لِمَا يُرِيدٌ Everything that he wills to happen, happens. As for us, sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. So we noted again that the Shaykh is continuing to mention attributes and names of Allah that are also attributes that belong to creation but in a different way to the way that they belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this just affirms for you the correctness of what Ahlul Sunnah believe regarding uh, the proper way to understand these attributes because once you start denying them like what do you have left of Allah's names you don't have knowledge you don't have hearing you don't have sight you don't have will you don't have decree you don't have judgment you don't have love you don't have anything, you don't have speech. And that is why and he sometimes and he, some of them said that the essence of all these people who like whittle away the the names of Allah is that all of them really return to the Jahmiyyah, to the deniers of the names of Allah. Because ultimately, if I told you I'm gonna describe to you a date palm tree, it has no trunk. It has no fruit, no branches, no leaves, no root, no sap, no palm fiber. It doesn't exist. And that is how the Jahmiyyah described Allah They described Allah in the negative. Allah is the one who doesn't hear and doesn't see and doesn't know and doesn't speak and doesn't rise and doesn't love and doesn't want and doesn't will okay what is left what does Allah do then the answer nothing so effectively this is atheism and that is why the, the madhab of the jahmiyyah ultimately is atheism because what you're left with is you're left with a God that is nothing and does nothing because they don't even attribute, and there's nothing left they can attribute to him. For the simple reason that every, almost every one of these attributes in some way has some resemblance to creation. In its meaning. But of course the way that it applies to Allah is unique to him subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why whichever road you go down, it's like following one of those maze diagrams. And you'll end up at a dead end. You will never end up with anything that works except to say, 
Allah hears and sees and loves and wills and decrees in a way that is different to his creation. And that way you will reach your goal. You'll reach a place where you are comfortable with the names and attributes of Allah Azawajal. And you can see why, we, as we said, so many of them end up as mufawwidah. I mean, they end up just saying Allahu A'lam. Because once you go down that road, you're telling me, okay. You're telling me Allah doesn't see because human beings see. Okay, does Allah know? He says, yeah, Allah knows. Okay, but human beings also have knowledge. He says, okay. Allah doesn't know. Allah doesn't know anything? No. Allahu A'lam. Yani, Allah knows best. <laughs> and he, Allah knows best after you said all of that then you say Allah knows best after you can't and he, subhanallah you see how the people became confused and what confused them nothing other than Aristotle and he, Aristotle and Greek philosophy and you know they got themselves so mixed up instead of just simply saying look many of the names of Allah have some parallels in his creation but they don't apply to Allah the same way that they apply to his creation because Allah said there is nothing that is like him and that's simple when you do that you have inshirah as-sadr your chest feels light you don't have any problem you believe in all the names and attributes you read the Qur'an, you benefit from it, you understand it, you make dua to Allah, you appreciate the names and attributes of Allah, and everything is fine. But as soon as you start taking Aristotle as your religious guide and leaving our Messenger Muhammad wasallam, then what do you expect will be the outcome? So the Shaykh he began to affirm the love of Allah Azza wa Jal. And the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioned in many, 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 many places in the Quran. Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَأَحْسِنُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ الْمُحْسِنِينَ And have ihsan. Have ihsan. Ihsan, the... Uh, it has many meanings. Another word I find very hard to translate. Uh, because ihsan can mean to strive for excellence. Ihsan can mean to do voluntary deeds. Ihsan can mean to exceed people's expectations. Indeed, Allah loves those who are al-muhsineen. Allah loves the muhsinun, the people who have ihsan, the people who do extra, the people who do voluntary deeds, the people who reach the highest level of iman. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَأَقْصِتُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ الْمُقْصِطِينَ And be just. Indeed, Allah Azza wa Jal loves those who are just. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, فَمَا اسْتَقَامُوا لَكُمْ فَاسْتَقِيمُوا لَهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ الْمُتَّقِينَ As long as they fulfill their side. Of the agreement, then fulfill yours. Indeed, Allah loves al-muttaqin, the people of taqwa, the people who strive to protect themselves from Allah's punishment. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, "Inna Allah yuhibbu tawabin wa yuhibbu al-mutatahirin." Indeed, Allah loves those who frequently repent, and Allah loves those who purify themselves. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, 
قُلْ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِ يُحْبِبْكُمُ اللَّهِ Say, if you really love Allah, then follow me. I follow the Prophet Allah will love you. And Allah said, فَسَوْفَ يَأْتِ اللَّهُ بِقَوْمِ يُحِبُّ فَسَوْفَ يَأْتِ اللَّهُ بِقَوْمِ يُحِبُّهُمْ وَيُحِبُّونَهُ Allah will bring about a people, He will love them, and they will love Him. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ الَّذِينَ يُقَاتِلُونَ فِي سَبِيلِهِ صَفَّةً كَأَنَّهُمْ بُنْيَانٌ مَرْسُوسٌ Indeed, Allah loves those people who fight uh, in His way in ranks, as though that they were a single reinforced building. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَهُوَ الْغَفُورُ الْوَدُودِ He is Al-Ghafoor. The oft forgiving and al wadud, the all loving. With regard to the love of Allah we've already uh, covered uh, a great deal of that in the previous discussion. But it's important to note here, at least I always think it's important to talk about the role of the, uh, or the, the position of the Christians. The Christians said effectively, Allah is nothing but Allah is nothing but love meaning that they affirmed no attribute for Allah azza wa jal other than love which is in itself very strange because they're not very good with uh, attributing forgiveness to Allah azza wa jal since that they claim that Allah azza wa jal and he punished mankind and he for several and hundred generations and he, because of eating an apple from a tree. So no doubt and he, they, they, they don't they're not they don't affirm forgiveness properly for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But one thing they're always telling you is God is love. How do we answer this question when a Christian says to you, God is love? We say al-wadud, the loving, is one of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah azza wa jal loves. However, there are two restraints that we have to put on that statement. The first is, Allah only loves that which is good. Did Allah azza wa jal said, inna Allah yuhibbul kafirin, Allah loves the kafirin? No. Did Allah say that he loves the fasiqeen? No. Did Allah say that he loves the adalleen, the misguided? No. Allah said he loves the muhsineen, the muttaqeen, the tawabeen, the mutatahhireen, those people who purify themselves, those people who make regular tawbah, those people who turn to Allah, those people. I mean, those are who Allah Azza wa Jal loves. So as for saying that Allah Azza wa Jal loves the disbeliever and the fasiq, then this is something that was invented by Ahl Kitab. 
by the Christians. Yani they did not have any delil for this. That Allah Azza wa Jal loves the, the kafir and that Allah Azza wa Jal uh, loves the mushrik and so on. And the love of Allah is in levels. There is no doubt that yani, the love of Allah is not the same for every Muslim. Yani, Allah's love of the Prophet وسلم, is not the same as Allah's love for you and I. It's not the same. Yani, Allah loves you according to how much of what you do that He loves. قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِ يُحْبِبْكُمُ اللَّهِ Say if you really love Allah, then follow me and Allah will love you. And Allah loves you according to the amount that you follow the Prophet ﷺ and his guidance. And the second thing is, love is not the only... If someone has... If, if God were to have only the attribute of love, this would not be a perfect God. This would be an imperfect God. Because along comes the murderer and the, you know, the, the person who kidnaps children and, you know, like the, the slave driver and all of these people and just God just loves them all the same. Like in Christianity, they'll just be right next to Jesus, you know, like, you know, the guy who, who uh, supposedly killed him and him will just be right next to each other because God loves everybody. That's not perfection. Perfection is that God should be infinitely powerful, capable of severe punishment and loving. So he loves those who deserve to be loved and he punishes those who deserve to be punished. And he forgives many, many, many things that deserve to be punished. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is how I tend to reply to the Christians when they will say, you know, and many times I have had the experience where Christians will say, the reason I don't become Muslim is because I don't feel the love of God in Islam. Meaning, Islam tells me there's things I can't do. The translation of that means, Islam tells me there's things I can't do. You know, I don't feel that, you, you ha I don't feel that God loves me. Say, do what God wants you to do to love Him and He will love you. And it also shows us that the love of Allah is within the capability of every Muslim to achieve with the help of Allah. And nobody ever should say, you know, like we have this mentality of, you know, these are the awliya of Allah, you know, like these are the beloved of Allah. And we are just, you know, like, I'm just designed to be, you know, created to be just, you know, the disobedient one who gets punished in Jahannam. That's the wrong attitude to have. وَمَا قَدَرُ اللَّهَ حَقَّ قَدَرِهِ They did not judge Allah or, or they did not give Allah his just estimation. Allah Azza wa Jal is al-wadud. Allah loves. And Allah, want, Allah loves to love you and wants to love you. But you have to do what will bring about the love of Allah And the more you follow the sunnah of the messenger of Allah wasallam, The more Allah will love you
And so this is within the ability of every Muslim. And every Muslim has a share of the love of Allah. I mean, every Muslim who remains in Islam has a share of the love of Allah. But according to the degree that they follow the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I think we'll, uh, we'll stop there, inshallah, for some questions. Um, I'm told, inshallah ta'ala, that uh, there are some important announcements, so please do wait for them. And Abu Mus'ab is apparently coming, inshallah to uh, give a short uh, reminder to you guys uh, in about 10 to 15 minutes so we'll just do Q&A until then uh, first of all Friday night reflections tonight will be cancelled that is because of the back on track seminar that is taking place today uh, it finishes at probably 9 o'clock in Al Barsha so for us to get back here for Friday night reflections is not practical uh, today, inshallah, there will be a unique seminar for teenagers. The reason it's unique is because it's been designed and run by teenagers. So what we did is we had a session, uh, we had a series of sessions called Back on Track. And basically, we took young people and we gave them about a 12-week course. And at the end of it, we set them a challenge to organize their own seminar with their own themes, their own activities, their choice of speakers, their, they did the budgeting, everything. And it was done by the young kids, uh, the young guys. So these uh, young guys have uh, basically come up with a seminar today. Uh, it's, a, it's a back on track uh, seminar and it's going to have its design for teenagers. You can find more information on Kelima's website, Facebook, etc. Uh, inshallah, it's free for anyone who wants to come. Um, and there's going to be activities. I think there's going to be all sorts of like uh, sp sporty type things and uh, games and team building and whatever. And there's also going to be lectures, inshallah. I believe registration starts around about 2.45. It might be 2.30. Check the, uh, the, the Facebook for more details. And inshallah, it will continue until about Asia time, inshallah, there'll be food provided, and um, so inshallah, if any of you have got sort of, I mean, there might be one or two teenagers here, but mostly if any of you have got like uh, relatives, kids, whatever, who want to come along, they don't have to be part of the Back on Track program, it's open to everyone, and it's held in Al-Barsha, in the next generation school in Al-Barsha, um, so Inshallah, you'll get more of the details on that from uh, from Facebook. Yeah, and the last announcement on the announcements list is that Abu Mus'ab is on his way, Inshallah. Um, I'm going to answer some questions now because usually I don't give enough time for answering questions. So we'll try and sit until Abu Mus'ab comes. I'd appreciate if nobody gets up and, well, unless you have something really desperately urgent until Abu Musa'ab comes because uh, it's not nice for us to be leaving when he's coming in. Allah has legislated slavery. Does this mean that slavery is something loved by Allah Azza The statement Allah has legislated slavery is incorrect. Uh, as a statement, it's incorrect. 
it needs to be qualified. Allah Azza wa Jal has legislated slavery in particular circumstances for particular people, for particular in you know with particular rules and regulations. It's not correct to say that Allah Azza wa Jal has legislated slavery. I have a long article which I've written on this. In fact, I'll bring the article up and I'll try and talk you through it since we have a little time, inshallah. Slavery is something which existed prior to Islam. And this included kidnapping people. Any people were kidnapped and sold into slavery. And this Allah does not love. It included capturing prisoners of war. It included enslaving the person in debt. And if you were in debt in pre-Islamic times, you would be enslaved until you could pay your debt back off. And the enslavement of the poor. And none of these are, in this sense, are legislated uh, in Islam. Islam came to abolish the enslavement of mankind and to take people from being slaves to men, to being slaves to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. However, there's no doubt that the circumstances at the time were complex. And so Allah azza wa jal legislated a means of dealing with slavery that was beloved to him subhanahu wa ta'ala. First of all, abolishing all forms of illegal enslavement, including kidnapping, enslaving the debtor, the poor, and the needy. The Prophet ﷺ said, there are three that I will be the opponent of on the day of resurrection, and whomever I oppose, I will defeat. From them, a man who sold a free man into slavery and consumed his price. And this was the basis of the Atlantic slave trade. And we talk about Slavery in the, in the USA, like, uh, or the Atlantic, what's known as the Atlantic slave trade. It was based on kidnapping free people from Africa. People who were not prisoners of war, they were not captives, they were not in, you know, in a legitimate circumstance at all. Rather, they were kidnapped as free people and transported against their will to be slaves. And this is something which Islam abolished from the very first moment. Number two, commanding that slaves should be treated according to the same standard as the person's own family and the prohibition of mistreating them. The Prophet ﷺ said, They are your brothers whom Allah has put under your authority. So if Allah has put a person's brother under his authority, let him feed him from what he eats and clothe him from what he wears, and let him not overburden him with work 
And if he does overburden him with work, then let him help him. This is what Allah loves. When you see the images associated with the Atlantic slave trade, it's impossible to imagine how slaves were treated in Islam. And when you think about, like, you see people being shoved in the bottom of uh, ships and left, you know, half of the people die and then half of them come out alive, emancipated, you know, their bones hanging and then made to work for the rest of their any lives for nothing. And this is not what Islam did. In Islam, the slave is given the same status as the person's own family. And you clothe them from what you clothe them with, you feed them from what you feed yourself with. You know, you, you help them out. If you gave them something that is too hard for them to do, you have to help them out, and so on. So much so that some of the companions wished that they could be slaves. Abu Hurairah radiallahu an said, If it were not for hajj and jihad and serving my mother, I would wish that I was a slave owned by someone. There are reports in Islam of slaves wishing to stay with their masters even after freedom. And these freed slaves who remained attached to their masters were so numerous that they're mentioned all the way through the books of prophetic traditions. If you hear, Mawla Fulan, and he usually, and he like, it's like the former slave of so-and-so. Islam made freeing slaves a major priority and among the best of good deeds. There is not a single passage of the Quran which encourages slavery and the taking of slaves. But there are many passages that encourage the freeing of slaves. For example, Allah said, uh, it is the freeing of a slave. It is the freeing of a slave or feeding on the day of severe hunger. In fact, Islam obliged the Muslims to free slaves as an expiation for several sins like manslaughter, breaking an oath, uh, intimacy during the day in Ramadan, a husband making a pronouncement his wife is forbidden to him. All of them, the, the expiation is to free the slave. Likewise, the expiation of beating a slave is to free them. And if somebody beats their slave, the Prophet said in Sahih Muslim, whoever slaps his slave or beats him, the expiation is to free him. And if you slap your slave, you have to free them. Number four, every slave is guaranteed the right to work for their freedom, even if the owner does not want them to. This is called an mukataba. Every single slave has the right to work for their freedom. So the slave simply goes to the owner and says, I wish to work for my freedom. The owner says, okay, your value is 100,000 dirhams. Your daily work value, like per day, is let's say, or per month, let's say, is uh, 5,000 dirhams a month. That's your, if you were a worker, that's what you would get paid. Okay, so once you have worked 5,000, 5,000, 5,000 until it reaches the amount of your value, you are free. And Islam obliged the owner to take the contract. He's not allowed to refuse. So every slave has the right to work for their own freedom. The slave is not prohibited from having precedence in religious matters, leading the prayer uh, and so on. Only in the issue of judging. Because in judging, it may be that the slave is put under pressure by the 
owner to make a certain judgment. But otherwise, the slave is, in terms of the prayer, in terms of teaching people Islam, many of the slaves, there were slaves who used to lead the salah, who used to lead the people in prayer. They used to lead the free people in prayer because of the, uh, the quality of their, the, the depth of their knowledge in Islam and the quality of their recitation. Several former slaves became governors of cities, including Makkah. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ married several former slaves, including Safiya, Juwayriya, radiallahu anhuma. And what is left is that Islam continued to permit enslavement of prisoners of war. Islam continued to permit the enslavement of prisoners of war. This is the only thing that Islam allowed to continue, which is the enslavement of prisoners of war, which is that when they capture the prisoner of war, the commander has three choices. He can enslave them, he can ransom them, sell them back to the, their people, and he can uh, free them for no, with no, no benefit in like for he can free them for the sake of Allah. So Islam did not force any commander, any military commander to enslave prisoners of war, but it is an option that is available to the Muslims. And so that is something which Allah loves because of the wisdom that is in it. Why does Allah love it? Because of the wisdom that is in it. It provides a way for those people to be exposed to Islam. It provides a way for the harm to be removed from the Muslims. What happens when you ransom someone back? You ransom, okay, you get your money, but then he comes with the, the next day to fight you. You know, so it provides a way to preserve life. You know, you don't have to kill them. Otherwise, your option is kill them or ransom them. So it gives you a third option, not to kill them and not to ransom them and to allow them to benefit the Muslims like they harmed the Muslims. And so like this person was harming the Muslims by killing them, he then has to now work for several years to be able to benefit the Muslims. And so, for example, he might work planting trees or he might work, you know, farming or doing something that will benefit the Muslims. So Allah loves this and there is nothing wrong with it. And actually the problem really with this is the issue of the word slavery or enslavement, to be honest with you. Uh, it's the right word, but it has such a, because of the Atlantic slave trade has such a negative connotation that when you say that Islam allows the enslavement of prisoners of war, people, you know, panic. But actually when you see what that enslavement actually meant, you clothe them with what you clothe yourself with, you feed them with what you feed yourself with, you know, you, uh, they do something which benefits Islam and the Muslims instead of harming them. And this is only for the people who were seeking to harm the Muslims in the first place. And then you try to free them at every opportunity. You know, every time you raise a hand, us free them. You did something bad, free them. You did a sin, free them. You did something in Ramadan, free them. That is Islam. And that is what Allah loves. And that's the proper explanation of does Allah love uh, slavery. How do we understand the two ayat لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ and وَلَهُ الْمَثَلُ الْأَعْلَىٰ
Laser Kamiti Hishay we've explained many times. There is no, absolutely nothing which is comparable to him. What about this ayah walahul mathal al a'la? We say this when uh, we give an example from creation to explain something about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there's no contradiction between the two. Because walahul mathalul a'la, to him belongs the best uh, example. I.e. to him belongs the example that there is no example like him. And to him belongs the example, there is no example like him. For example, I might say to you, uh, what would you do if you had a man standing at the top or on a balcony looking over you in the masjid and watching what are you doing? But to Allah belongs a totally the example that the, what I'm saying is that that man that I'm giving you the example of, I'm giving you the example of being watched. I'm not giving you the example of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I say, and to Allah belongs the highest example, meaning there is nothing comparable and nothing similar to Allah Azza wa Jal. But we often say this when we illustrate, we try to explain something about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala using an example from uh, His creation. That is not to compare Allah to His creation, but to give you an example you can understand. For example, to say like, how would you behave if someone was stood watching you now? Like, how would you behave at work? If your boss was stood on a balcony right over your desk, like watching with a camera over everything that you do. But to Allah belongs a much higher example than that. And that, that example I gave you is an example of, and that example that I gave you is an example, which is an example of a human being. It's not an example of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To Allah belongs the highest example. See how we are doing. Okay, let me see if we have any questions from the sister's side. Yeah, we have some questions. Okay, please can you explain the correct way of thinking? regarding the Christian statement that humans are created in Allah's resemblance. We're going to come to this in Al-Aqid Al-Wasatiyah, inshallah. We will come to this in, in proper detail. Someone with an atheist inclination said, what's the point of this world if Allah knows the outcome of every slave? We'll, we'll come to this, ta'ala. These two we will come to. All of these questions got a bit more difficult, so we will come to them, but Abu Mus'ab is here, so inshallah, uh, I'm going to hand over to him, bi ta'ala. I have like four questions, inshallah. I've saved them, bi ta'ala, uh, for, uh, for next time. Inshallah, we'll try and stop a little early and we'll try and finish them, because they're all ones that will take me like 15, 20 minutes to answer each, so they're a little bit complicated. And Allah knows best. Wa salatu wa salam ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.
So after saying Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salam ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. So inshallah ta'ala we have a new topic to start today. Um, it's a very very interesting topic. And it's certainly considered to be among the harder topics in Islam. And it's one of those topics that when you study it, you genuinely feel like a talib al-ilm, like a student of knowledge. Because you begin to study just a glimpse, just a, a fraction of what the scholars use in order to make the rulings that they, to give the rulings that they give and in order to have the understanding that they have of the book of Allah and the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And one of the branches of knowledge where you really feel like you're getting a glimpse into the world of the, the scholars is this science that we're going to talk about. And it is the science of usul al-fiqh. Today, we're just going to talk about what usul al-fiqh is and what it isn't. Because for a lot of you, this will be the first time you've ever studied Usul al-Fiqh. So we should start by saying that Usul al-Fiqh is made up of two words. Usul and Fiqh. If we want to understand the grammar or the construct in English, we're saying the usul of fiqh. The usul of fiqh. But we're still left with two Arabic words there, usul and fiqh. Usul with a sad is the plural of asl. And asl has a number of meanings, but one of the meanings is something which everything else is built upon, i.e. the foundation. We call the foundation of something al-asl. Because it is something which everything else is built upon. So in this case, usul would be foundations. We also use the word asl to mean al-qa'idah, the principle. In which case, usul would be qawaid, principles. And there are other definitions which we will come to next week when we start the book properly. But just in general, you understand that usul is the plural of asl, and asl means a foundation or a principle.
And as for al-fiqh, then linguistically, al-fiqh is understanding. Like in the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and yuridillahu bihi khayra yufaqihu fiddeen. Whoever Allah wants good for, he gives him fiqh in the religion. The meaning of fiqh in the religion is not that he makes him a scholar of fiqh. As in whoever Allah wants good for him, he makes him a scholar of fiqh. And whoever Allah doesn't, he makes him a scholar of hadith. Not like this. But the meaning of fiqh here is understanding. Yufaqihu fiddeen. He gives him understanding of the religion. This is linguistically. And as for in a technical sense, we'll come to a proper definition of fiqh later on. In a technical sense. But here, we're talking about Islamic rulings, essentially. We're talking about, when we talk about fiqh here, we're talking about detailed Islamic rulings. Detailed Islamic rulings. So, usul al-fiqh, in this sense, therefore, are the fundamental principles or the foundations upon which detailed Islamic rulings are based. The fundamental principles or foundations upon which the detailed Islamic rulings are based. An example of a detailed Islamic ruling. Somebody asks you, I said the word divorce to my wife three times in one sitting. Is this a single divorce or is this a irrevocable divorce, a three times divorce? This is a detailed Islamic ruling. To get to that ruling, we have some fundamental foundations which we need to be able to get to that detailed ruling. Those fundamental foundations and principles don't relate to any one particular science. They're not related to talaq or marriage or buying or selling or prayer or wudu. They're much more general than that. So it is the very, very general fundamentals and principles upon which detailed rulings are based. Now that tells us that we can't get to the point where we make detailed rulings unless we have these foundations and these principles. So without these foundations and principles, we would not be able to get to the point where we are able to extract a detailed ruling from a body of evidence. Because if you think about it, I usually give the example, it's like a mine. Like a mine. You go into the mine and you're basically chipping off stone. You come out, you refine it, you purify it, and it turns into whatever it is, gold or copper or silver or whatever. Likewise, we go into Islamic evidence, the Quran, the Sunnah, consensus, and so on. How do we come out with 
a detailed ruling, which is like the example of that gold. You know, how do we go from chipping away at the stone to extracting the gold? How do we go from a body of text which talks about many things? The ayah might talk about talaq, it might talk about intention, it might talk about many different things. How do we then go from that to produce a detailed ruling on a particular issue? The process of doing that and the science of doing that is the science of usul al-fiqh. So we've talked about it from a linguistic sense. I mean, so far we haven't talked about it from a technical sense. Just linguistically that it is the foundations or the principles which underlie or underpin the science of fiqh, i.e. to be able to give detailed rulings based on Islamic evidences. Therefore, it, uh, this is the principles or the fundamentals which basically run this whole process. The definition that I'm going to give you today, and there are many, of course, but the definition I'm going to give you today for usul al-fiqh is that usul al-fiqh is the proofs of Islamic legislation in a general sense. and the way in which they are used as evidence. I'll repeat that a few times. The proofs of Islamic legislation in a general sense. The proofs of Islamic legislation in a general sense. And the way in which they are used as evidence. the proofs of Islamic legislation in a general sense and the way in which they are used as evidence. Now, the first time you hear that definition, it's a little bit cloudy. You know, it needs a little bit of clarity. You're kind of like, okay, the proofs of Islamic legislation, what are they in a general sense? Why general? Why not specific? and the way in which they use this evidence. So really this definition breaks down into three parts. The proofs of Islamic legislation. That's part one. And part two in a general sense, meaning not in a detailed sense or a specific sense. And number three, the way in which they are used as, as evidence. And if you wish, you can join one and two together and say it's two parts. The proofs of Islamic legislation in a general sense and then the second part in the way in which they are used as evidence. Usul al-fiqh doesn't look at specific evidences. It doesn't look at for example, an ayah, at least not from the point of view of extracting a ruling from it. It doesn't deal with a, with a hadith. It deals with 
the general proofs of Islamic legislation. For example, the Quran as a whole. The Sunnah as a whole. Consensus as a whole. What is valid out of that? What isn't valid out of that? And the different levels of each one. So what is valid, what is not valid? In the sense, what is an acceptable proof and what isn't? If I said I had a dream, and in this dream, I was told that riba is halal. Usul al-fiqh isn't going to answer the question of whether riba is halal or not. That is a question for, for fiqh. It's going to answer the question, is a dream an acceptable proof in Islamic legislation? And if so, to what extent? And what level does that have in comparison to all of the other levels of Islamic proof? Is it more important than the Quran, less important than the Quran? And so on. Of course, dreams have no place in Islamic legislation. But I'm giving you just an example that I, you know, hopefully you can relate to. Usul al-fiqh deals with legislation in a general sense. Yes, it may look at ayat, it may look at individual ayat. But it's not looking at them for a detailed ruling. It's not looking at is this halal or is this haram. It's looking at the mechanism of why is anything halal or anything haram. What makes something halal? What makes something haram? Not necessarily the individual issue. So you wouldn't open a book of usul al-fiqh and find the ruling on selling two contracts within one contract. You find that in a book of fiqh. In usul al-fiqh, what you will find is, in a general sense, when is a hadith a proof, when is a hadith not a proof? When is consensus a proof, when is consensus not a proof? If I have an ayah which contradicts a hadith, which one do I put first? If I have consensus which contradicts a hadith, how do I reconcile? So it deals with legislation in a general sense. What's valid and what isn't? And the different levels, i.e. the different levels of each. Now, a person may say, doesn't that have an overlap with the science of hadith? And the answer is yes, there is somewhat of an overlap. Um, in, in different sciences, because you have to remember that the Prophet ﷺ didn't have usul al-fiqh classes and usul al-hadith classes. And, and he taught Islam as a whole. And so yes, for sure there, is, there are some levels of overlap. But generally the scholars of hadith are very specifically interested in distinguishing authentic hadith from inauthentic hadith. The scholar of usul is not really worried about that method as much as what do I do with an inauthentic hadith and what do I do with an authentic hadith? And which one is a proof and which one isn't? 
And what about if I have two inauthentic hadith? Can I use them as supporting evidence for one another? And they're interested in its use as evidence. Whereas the scholar of hadith is simply interested in whether it's authentic or not. Not necessarily its evidence. Although the scholar of hadith, of course, will involve himself in evidence from but he's putting a different hat on then he's taking his hadith hat off and putting his fiqh hat on you know he's changing his perspective but in general the scholar of hadith his main aim when he's doing the science of hadith is to distinguish what's authentic and what isn't and this is authentic this isn't this is authentic this isn't the scholar of usul is more interested this is a proof and this isn't this is a proof and this isn't that's his main concern Yes, there may be some overlap because, of course, if a hadith is weak, it may, non may no longer be valid as a proof. And therefore, there may be some overlap there. But in general, the scholar of hadith, his concern is simply, is it authentic? The scholar of fiqh is the one who is going to say, okay, is it a proof or not? And the way in which they are used as evidence, this is the last part of the definition. I.e., in what way does the evidence indicate a particular ruling? So I have some evidence. The first part is all about choosing what is evidence. If you give the example of the mine, the first part of the definition is about choosing which rock to chip off and take back to the surface and which one to leave. The second part is about, okay, now I brought all these rocks to the surface that are supposedly got, they're supposedly got gold or silver or whatever in them. In what way does this evidence any produce this outcome? And how do we go about extracting it? In what way does the evidence indicate a particular ruling? And this will become clear as we explain the chapters of Asul al-Fiqh, it will become easier. In what way does the evidence indicate a particular ruling? I have a body of evidence. In what way does that tell me? How do I know that this is going to, or that this indicates a particular ruling? And then how do I go about extracting the ruling from that evidence? Okay, I have a bunch of evidence. How do I go about extracting the ruling from that evidence? So once again we say usul al-fiqh are the proofs of Islamic legislation in a general sense. I.e. the Qur'an, the Sunnah, consensus, what is valid, what isn't, and the different levels of each. And the way in which they are used as evidence. I.e. in what way does the evidence indicate a particular ruling? When, do I, when does an evidence tell me something is wajib? When does an evidence tell me something is haram? When does an evidence tell me that something is recommended. How do I know it's recommended and not obligatory? How do I know it's haram and not makruh? And how do I then go about extracting rulings from this body of evidence that I have? So in the beginning, it kind of gets more and more specific. In the beginning, I'm interested what is in evidence and what isn't. 
This is an evidence, this isn't. This is an evidence, this isn't. Okay, I've got my evidence now. In what way does that evidence show me that it's going to indicate a particular ruling? And then how do I actually do the final process of getting that ruling out of the evidence? That is the primary concern of usul al-fiqh. Having said that, there are topics in usul al-fiqh outside of that definition. However, they are what you would call introductions and appendices, really. Even though maybe some scholars of usul al-fiqh would not agree with me in that. but They are generally introductions and appendices. In other words, they are basically supporting information for that. That is the main purpose of usul al-fiqh. For example, in the beginning of usul al-fiqh, we usually talk about al-ahkam, rulings. What are rulings? What are the different categories of rulings? That's not really part of that definition, the categories of rulings. However, it's needed because when you're going to start talking about how to extract rulings, you should at least know what type of rulings you're going to extract in the first place. And likewise, for example, the chapter of Al-Mufti wal-Mustafti. The one who gives the fatwa and the one who asks for a fatwa. What are the characteristics of the person who gives the fatwa and what are the characteristics of the person who asks for a fatwa? This, again, is not part of the definition. But it's only a supporting topic. It's not the main purpose. The purpose is a supporting topic because while we're talking about usul al-fiqh we should also talk about the characteristics of the scholar of, us of usul al-fiqh and the characteristics that are required when you go to the scholar to ask for that ruling so when I go to the scholar and say I want to know this ruling what are the manners and the mechanisms by which I should ask for that ruling and how should he approach giving that ruling to me that's still an appendix really to the main topic of actually taking the ruling out. So, yes, we can say this definition is uh, it doesn't cover every single topic within usul al-fiqh. However, what it does do is focus on what usul al-fiqh really is. And I feel this is extremely important. Because as we will learn, as we're going through, usul al-fiqh was somewhat hijacked by people whose aqidah, whose creed was not the creed of Ahl sunnah and the majority of the books that, we, that are studied today on usul al-fiqh are written by people whose aqidah was questionable and so what they did and of course not all of them but what many of them did is that they added into usul al-fiqh things that don't belong to it. And so when you read a book of usul al-fiqh, for example, something you know, uh, significant like Mustafa by Ghazali, Imam al-Ghazali, you see like loads and loads and loads and loads of things outside of that definition. This definition helps you to focus on what really is usul al-fiqh and not what is ilm al-kalam.
Because ilm al-kalam has no part in usul al-fiqh. The science of rhetoric and philosophy have no part in usul al-fiqh. And the fact that people like al-Ghazali rahimahullah, and others added philosophy into usul al-fiqh is their fault, not the fault of usul al-fiqh. And it's their mistake to add philosophy into usul al-fiqh. However, the reality is when you open books of usul al-fiqh, you will find a lot of philosophy and rhetoric and a lot of stuff that needs cutting away. So what I wanted to do with this definition is to give you the knife by which you can cut away the stuff that doesn't belong. Meaning that the stuff that is outside of this definition, apart from the supporting chapters of what rulings are and who the scholar of usul is and whatever, generally a lot of it you will find is just rhetoric and philosophy. And that has no place in Islam. It has no place in the early books of usul al-fiqh, like those of Al-Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala. Because Al-Imam al-Shafi'i was one of the strongest people against this philosophy and rhetoric. And it was only those people who came well after the, the four imams and after their books of usul and after so on, that, that they started to add in philosophy and rhetoric until the books that we mostly study today have a lot of that in. And it's quite hard to find books that are free of that rhetoric and philosophy unless you go either back to the earliest of the books, in which case they're not very well ordered and they're a little bit, you know... For example, if you look at Al-Um by Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala, it's a mix of many things. The science of hadith is in there, usul al-fiqh is in there. There's a, there's a lot of stuff in there. So you kind of have to cut away a lot of the stuff that doesn't belong. So in general, it helps to have a very narrow definition so that you can be a little bit selective and say, to be honest, do I really need to know, you know, like, some of the stuff that is in these books, you know probably half of the book, you could just take a razor blade and cut the pages out. because it would, It's just kalam. It's just rhetoric. Uh, and it doesn't benefit you anything. And when you study it, it gives you a headache. Really, I mean, you study it. like there, This is why people don't study usul al-fiqh. And I think usul al-fiqh has a bad reputation, i.e. it has a reputation for being extraordinarily difficult. It has a reputation that people can't study. It's extremely difficult. But really the main reason it's extremely difficult is because it's full of philosophy and rhetoric. And once you cut away that philosophy and rhetoric, actually usul al-fiqh, like the rest of Islam, is very, very easy to understand and simple. And it has nice, clear foundations that can be applied and you can practice them. But you have to cut away the, you have to cut away the junk. And so it helps to have quite a narrow definition of what usul al-fiqh is so that you are able to remove that stuff that doesn't belong there or you're able to at least filter it out. These books are of great benefit, the books that we, we, we study, even the book we're going to study in class uh, is by uh, one of the scholars who uh, himself was Ash'ari, he was one of the imams of the Ash'ari. Uh, he repented from that towards the end of his life, rahimahullah ta'ala. But at the end of the day, the book that we will study, which is Al-Waraqat by Imam, uh, Imam Al-Haramain, Abdul Malik Al-Juwaini, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, uh, Abu Al-Ma'ali, he was an Imam from the Imma of the Ashaira, from the Imma of the Asharis. He was not from Ahl Sunnah in that sense. However, he repented from this towards the end of his life. But his books, especially the books on Usul, 
they remain they remain full of this stuff uh, alhamdulillah al-waraqat is one of the better ones yeah. but the point is that we you will come across stuff you will come across things that you will need to cut away once you cut that stuff away usul al-fiqh becomes incredibly simple because one of the most fundamental principles of rhetoric of ilm al-kalam and philosophy is that you are speaking about things that have no fruit. And we spoke about this before. They have no thamara. They have no action. You're speaking about things that have no practical application. And so that causes a lot of headache when you study something like that. Because you're studying something that has no practical application in Islam or outside of Islam at all. It is purely rhetoric. For example, when the philosopher sits and says, what if we're not actually living in a real world? What if this world we're living in is actually a dream? And we're all just any figments of that dream. And say, okay, what shall I do now? Like, what's, what, 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 shall I, what shall I do? Should I change my religion? Should I, what, I mean, what should I do? Tell me, what should I do? Okay, we're living in a dream. What shall I do? Say, well, there's nothing you can do. I just wanted to share that with you. That's philosophy. It's speech which there is no benefit in whatsoever. Not only does it contradict the Quran and the Sunnah, which clearly make it, tr make it clear to us that we're not living in a dream, but that's not the point. The point is that even if it, we look outside of the Quran and Sunnah, there's no action. There's nothing to do. It's just philosophizing and he's sitting there and thinking, what if actually I'm not me? Like, this is philosophy. And when you come across this in usul al-fiqh, it will hurt your head to an in, you know, insane degree. Because you're studying something that has no amal, it has no barakah in it. It didn't come from Allah and from his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It came from Plato and Aristotle. And so ultimately sitting there, you can sit there all day and say, what if I'm not me? But ultimately, Yawm Al-Qiyamah, is that going to benefit you anything? Is that going to actually lead you to get to Jannah or save you from Jahannam? Nothing. There's no action to do. And so it's very important, I believe at least it's very important, that we cut out this rhetoric from the books of Usul Al-Fiqh. And Usul Al-Fiqh is one place in Islam where you'll see this a lot. Of course, they won't be talking about dreams and am I me, but they'll be talking about similar kind of wispy, wavy ideas as it relates to Islamic legislation. You know, they'll talk for a very, very, very long time about whether evidence provides doubt or certainty. Or to what extent can you say you're certain about your evidence and what extent you can say you're doubtful about it? Some of that might have a, a limited benefit in it. But ultimately, again, you ask at the end of the day, okay, and if this hadith is qat'i or dhanni, this hadith is either an absolute certainty or it's you know, predominant in my opinion. Ultimately, I'm still going to act upon the hadith. What shall I do? And like, I'm not going to change. Whether you know, you talk about, is it potentially possible that there could have ever been an error in this hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari? It's all type of discussion that 
ultimately doesn't bring you any action. It doesn't change what you do. Because at the end of it, they'll say, yeah, yeah, you still have to act upon it. So, okay, what is the point in then in me discussing all day about whether it's qat'i or dhanni, whether it provides absolute knowledge or whether it provides preponderant knowledge? Okay, absolute knowledge or preponderant knowledge, whatever it provides, but I still have to act upon it. I still have to get up in the morning and do wudu the way that it tells me to do wudu. So whether the knowledge is, is absolute or whether the knowledge is 99%, it doesn't make really any great difference about it. So there's a lot of discussion you'll come across and usually when you start talking about it, it hurts your head. You start thinking, what is predominant? What is absolute knowledge? And what does it mean that knowledge is certain or not certain? And what is certainty? And it, you start scratching your head. That's when you know that you've deviated from the sunnah in usul al-fiqh and you've started into philosophy and rhetoric because it makes you scratch your head and it makes you think, ow, you know, that, that hurts. At the end of the day, the sahaba did not concern themselves with this. They did not sit there concerning themselves. Does it provide me with certain knowledge or preponderant knowledge? And if it's preponderant knowledge, then what, to what extent is that knowledge? Can that knowledge be quantified? And, and They did not discuss this. They heard a hadith and they acted upon it. So inshallah that is hopefully uh, that is hopefully clear. Another thing that we should make clear about usul al-fiqh uh, in this brief introduction is that it isn't just the fundamentals from which we extract fiqh as in fiqh rulings. But also any Islamic rulings, rulings in aqidah, rulings in uh, manners, in any issue, all of them require some degree of usul al-fiqh because how are you going to prove that this is your belief you know your aqidah has to come from the quran and the sunnah so how are you going to prove that this is from the quran and the sunnah how are you going to know what is a valid evidence and what isn't so usul al-fiqh is not just an evidence for fiqh on its own but it's also an evidence for other forms of islamic knowledge it's also the foundation for other forms of islamic knowledge in terms of Anything for which we need to use evidence requires usul al-fiqh. Any form of knowledge for which we need to provide an evidence requires usul al-fiqh. Because usul al-fiqh is that which says to us what is a valid evidence and what isn't a valid evidence. And usul al-fiqh is what says to us which evidence is stronger than the other. So we need it to prove points of uh, belief as well as we needed to prove points of halal and haram in terms of fiqh. Very briefly, just in two, three minutes, I just talk you through the, uh, the main sort of division of usul al-fiqh. Again, it's very, very simplified, but it's okay, we can simplify. It's nice to simplify first. Really, usul al-fiqh can be simplified into three or four topics. The first one is an introductory topic. I, it's not part of the main definition. It's an introduction, and that is the definition of the various rulings in Islam. For example, what is wajib, what is mustahab, what is 
makruh. What is haram? What does that mean? So the definition of the various rulings in Islam, and there are more than that. What's a condition? What's an impediment? There are lot, like there are various things, but definitions of rulings. Definitions of rulings. And that isn't really part of the main body of usul al-fiqh, but it's kind of like the introduction. It's like before you go into the mind, someone says, okay, this is a, this is a gold ore, and this is silver ore, and this is iron ore. And so you should be aware of what you're going in to look for. So it kind of gives you an introduction to that. The first main topic of usul al-fiqh is the topic of evidence, al-adillah. And this topic of evidence primarily looks at four things. Because as we said, it doesn't look at evidence specifically, it looks at evidence generally. So it looks at the Qur'an and the Sunnah and consensus and analogy. Four things, generally. Very simplified, but four things. The first main topic in Usul al-Fiqh is the topic of evidence. And it looks at the Qur'an. What is the Qur'an? What isn't the Qur'an? What is the Qur'an approved for? To what extent is the Qur'an approved? What place does the Qur'an have in the level of proofs? And so on. The Qur'an, the Sunnah, Consensus, which we call ijma' and qiyas, analogy. Consensus, when everyone agrees on something. Analogy, where you compare one thing to another. So you say this is haram because it's similar to this, which is also haram. For example, these are Evidences. There's a lot of long discussion. There are individual books on each individual part of that. But we're just going to do a summary of evidence. The second main category of usul al-fiqh relates to what words mean. The meaning of the meaning of words or the evidence which is taken from various words. For example, commands and prohibitions. What's a command? What's a prohibition? What are the different forms of commands and prohibitions that are found? What makes something a command? What makes something a prohibition? What is general and what is specific? How do you know something is general to be applied to every, everything, every circumstance? How do you know something is specific to a particular circumstance? Absolute and restricted. How do you know that something is unrestricted in its application? And how do you know when something is restricted to a particular application? Restricted to a particular time or a particular place. 
How do you know when something is abrogated? How do you know when something is explicit? Or when something is implicit? Any when something is explicit, you know, it's absolutely clear, or when something is implicit, it's implied by the meaning, but it's not completely clear. These are all come under the topic of maybe we could call it call it Dilalatul Alfaz, but I think maybe we could call it the way that words are used as evidence. Maybe that's the best translation for it. The way that words are used as evidence. So it deals with what is a command, what's a prohibition, what's general, what's specific, what's unrestricted, what's restricted, what's explicit, what's implicit. What is general and vague and what is specific and detailed. And it deals with abrogation. What is abrogation? And how do we know something is abrogated? And then the final topic of Usul al-Fiqh, the final, if you like, major topic in Usul al-Fiqh is At-Ta'arud wa tarjih Contradiction and At-Tarjih, and he preferring one opinion over the other. What do you do if there is an apparent contradiction? And how do you know to prefer one uh, evidence over another evidence? How do you come to a conclusion as to which evidence carries more weight versus which carries less weight? As we said, there are several appendices which can be added to that, including, as we said, al-mufti wal-mustafti, the one who gives the fatwa and the one who asks for it, and the conditions of ijtihad and some other things. But this is the main, the core of usul al-fiqh. can be found in these four chapters, the first of which is an introduction, and the three which are the main topic. The topic of evidence, the topic of the way that words are used as evidence or the evidence that is taken from, from, from wording and phrases. Sure, they use a proper word for that in English, like phraseology or something like that, but I don't know what it is. And at-ta'arud wa tarjih what do you do when there is an apparent contradiction between different texts and how do you prefer or give preference or give extra weight to one text over another? That is, inshallah ta'ala, what we're going to be studying in Usul uh, al-Fiqh, bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. And we'll be studying from, as we said, a very, very simple beginner's text. It's a very, very good text. The scholars have generally accepted it as being an excellent text to teach from, uh, which is called Al-Waraqat, which is, I mean, Al-Waraqat, just a, a few pieces of paper because it's nice and small, by Imam Al-Haramain, Abu Ma'ali, then Malik, Al-Juwaini, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. And inshallah Ta'ala, we'll talk more about the author and the book in the next class. Bi-idhnillahi Ta'ala. 
inshallah in terms of results for your previous exam not the one you took today they should be out in the next couple of days um, I'm a little running a little bit late but they're pretty much done inshallah so uh, results should be out in the next couple of days and other than that inshallah we will stop there I actually have an appointment now I believe in, s in Kalima there's uh, some people waiting to accept Islam maybe so inshallah we have to uh, leave a little bit quickly um, and uh, I won't have too much time for questions but next I will try to give some time next lesson because we have some outstanding questions uh, also tonight Friday night reflections inshallah or whichever one it is names of Allah Friday night reflections whichever the two it's here anyway after Isha and it will be the last uh, one before Ramadan so do encourage everyone to come inshallah ta'ala uh, to that Jazakumullah khairan بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد. So inshallah ta'ala today we start the reading of al-warqat in usul al-fiqh by Imam al-Haramain Abil Maali Abdul Malik. Ibn Abdullah Al-Juwayni Al-Shafi'i Rahimahullah Ta'ala Just to give you a little bit of information about the title and a little bit of information about the author very very quickly I don't want to spend too long on this because we have a lot to get through With regard to the title Al-Waraqat Of course Al-Waraqat it comes from Waraqa Waraqa is a piece of a piece of paper. But generically or generally the plural of waraqa is awraq. And the fact that we say waraqat, it indicates that it's only just like a few small pieces of paper. It's not like a big bundle of paper, it's just a few small pieces of paper. And this is one of the reasons why we teach this book, because it is very small, it is very easy to understand generally. Uh, and it summarizes Usul al-Fiqh in just a few short pages. It's well worth memorizing for those who know Arabic and, or who feel able to do so. And if you wish, you could memorize the poem. There is a poem of Al-Waraqat rather than the actual uh, text itself. As for the author, he is known as Imam al-Haramain, the Imam of the two, of the two harams. His kunya and his nickname is Abu al-Maali, and his name is Abdul Malik ni Abdullah al-Juwaini 
al-Shafi'i, and he was Shafi'i in his uh, in his madhab. Those of you who know a little bit about uh, the history of Aqidah will recognize that al-Juwaini was a major figure in the Ash'ari Aqidah, the Ash'ari belief, which is against the belief of Ahl-Sunnah. And al-Juwaini represents a big imam for the Ash'aris, yani, in the sense that everyone who came after him from the Ash'aira used his opinions and his writings as an evidence. However, Al-Juwaini repented from this belief at the end of his life, rahimahullah. As did more than one of the Imams. As did, for example, Al-Imam Al-Ghazali, rahimahullah ta'ala, also repented from his belief. As did Abu Hassan Al-Ash'ari, rahimahullah ta'ala, also repented from his belief towards the end of his life. So many of these Imams who are, today we study their books and so on. We have to be a little careful because when they wrote those books, they were Asha'ira. And so you expect them to do what the Asha'ira do. And Al-Juwaini, even in Al-Waraqat, he has moments where he... And we'll talk about Al-Majaz and we'll talk about you know, some other areas where he, he comes into, into the madhab of the Asha'ira. However... There are a couple of things to note. First of all, these imams were, inshallah ta'ala, we hope, nahsabuhum kathalik. They were sincere in their efforts to learn knowledge and pass it on. And that's why you will see Al-Juwaini will go against the Asha'ira in Al-Waraqat. And you'll see him in more than one issue, like the issue of Al-Kalam, of speech, he will go against the madhab of the Ashaira. That's because these imams were not muta'asibin. They were not like extremely, extremely like staunch in the sense that they will never accept the truth. They explained the truth as they thought it was. As the best of, to the best of their ability. And that's why when you see the yani, Ahl Bid'ah of today, you see this ta'asub, yani. Like for example, among the, the people who worship the graves, and they will, doesn't matter if you bring them an ayah or hadith, they will never accept it from you. Whereas these imams were not like that. Yes, they were Asha'ira and Al-Juwaini was from the major imams of the Asha'ira. But at the end of the day, he was willing to listen to the dalil, to the evidence. And that's why he himself goes against their madhab in more than one place of the book and he goes with the madhab in more than one place of the book and likewise you can see the same from many of the imams of uh, of the ashaira any of people who were ashari or so on that they as these scholars any as scholars were searching for the truth al-juwaini reached the truth towards the end of his life and he repented from being ashari he repented from ilm al-kalam he warned the people against it. As did Al-Ghazali, rahimahullah ta'ala. As did Abu Hassan himself, Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari. And he, towards the end of his life, repented from what he did, warned the people against it. So ultimately, and we have to recognize that these books are of great benefit. 
The scholars of Ahl-Sunnah have not ceased teaching these books. They have not stopped teaching Al-Waraqat from the time that it was written until today. But we do have to be careful because there will be times when he will go with his, his uh, aqidah which is not correct. Uh, especially in some of the areas of usul al-fiqh. So we have to be a little bit careful. But the book itself is not full of Ash'ari ideology. I mean, the book is not full. The book is a good book on usul al-fiqh, which sometimes just he just goes a little bit, he just dips, dips a little bit into it. And likewise, Al-Ghazali, rahimahullah ta'ala, and others. So we say, rahimahullah, and he repented towards the end of his life. Uh, he turned back on those things that he used to propagate and believe. But at the same time, we understand that when studying these books, we are going to come across areas where we have to clarify. And in Al-Waraqat, there is nothing that will, you know, bowl you over and make you say, you know, this is terrible. But there are areas where you have to be careful. You have to be careful about some of the definitions of speech. You have to be a little bit careful about uh, this issue of al-haqiqa wal-majaz, this issue of whether there exists in the speech of the Arabs words that don't mean what, they, what the apparent meaning of the word is. And is there an example of a word in the speech of the Arabs which doesn't mean what it says it means? Why do the Asha'ira want to do this? So that they can say that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said Ar-Rahmanu ala al-Arsh istawa He did not mean istawa So they invent this entire framework for Arabic Where you say things that you don't mean And they give examples of that But inshallah ta'ala We will cover the refutation of those examples And we will cover why it is that those examples are not valid They give many examples in the Quran Where Allah azza wa jal according to them Say, uh, say something with a, yani a word or a speech which isn't the intended meaning. And inshallah ta'ala, we're going to cover the refutation of that particular issue and prove how it is that this is an invalid principle to start with and why it has to be invalid with regard to the Qur'an and why it's most likely to also be invalid in the whole speech of the Arabs from beginning to end. Although some of Ahl Sunnah said it exists in the speech of the Arabs, but it doesn't exist in the Quran. We'll come to that, inshallah ta'ala. So we'll, there'll be times when you have to kind of be a little bit careful. But in general, the book is an excellent book. It's an excellent summary. And our scholars and our teachers of Aqidah have not ceased to teach this book in their classes and to recommend us to, to, to teach it and to recommend us to learn from it. And so, inshallah ta'ala, that is what we are going to do. Al Juwaini died 478. Yeah, 478 after the Hijrah. And from this, and is a side point on the topic while we're on the topic of Aqidah. All of these so called Imams of Aqidah from the Asha'ira are all well after the, the Qurun al Mufaddara. They're all well after the age where of the Prophet ﷺ and his companions and his, you know, the tabi'een and those who followed them. 
And that in itself should give you confidence. Because if you ask the source of your belief, the source of your belief are people from the time of the Prophet ﷺ and the time of the Tabi'een and the time of those who came after them. And as for these Ash'aris, none of them came from that generation at all. All of them came from the later uh, generations. After the Prophet ﷺ said, the best of the generations is my generation, then those who follow them and those who follow them. And this is your answer to the person who says, don't you see that all of the scholars of Islam were Ash'ari? That's what they say. And then they start quoting Al-Juwaini, Al-Ghazali, Al-Nawawi, Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar. All of the scholars of Islam. There were no scholars of Islam upon the Sunnah. Allah, even if we accept what they say, we just ask them, okay, the first 150 years after the Hijrah, where were your scholars then? No answer. Because they didn't exist. Because the people in that time were upon the belief of Ahl Sunnah. And so even if everyone after them was Ashari, which is not the truth and not the case, but even if we submit to their statement that every single scholar after that was Ashari, it still proves the, proves the falsehood of their belief. Because quite simply, where was that belief in the time of the Prophet ﷺ? Where was that belief in the time of Abu Bakr? Where was that belief in the time of Umar? Where was that belief in the time of Uthman? Where was that belief in the time of Ali? Where was that belief in the time of Al-Hasan al-Basri and Muhammad ibn Sirin? Where was that belief in the time of Imam al-Zuhri? Where was that belief? And so on and so on and so on. And everyone was upon misguidance until Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari was born. So this is a very foolish thing they say, but it's very common you hear. They will say our belief must be right because every scholar was upon our belief. Whereas the reality is none of the scholars of the early generations were upon their belief. Neither were the four imams. You only have to read what Abu Hanifa said about Ilm al-Kalam. What Al-Imam Shafi'i said about Ilm al-Kalam. These are Imam Shafi'iyya, Al-Imam Shafi'i. As I recall, the punishment for engaging in ilm al-kalam upon which the Ash'ari belief is based was to put this person, to whip the person in public and put him on a donkey and parade him through the streets. And that was the punishment according to Imam al-Shafi'i. And let the person who is walking with him cry out, this is the punishment of the one who engages himself in ilm al-kalam. That was the madhab of Imam al-Shafi'i. So these beliefs that came, these false beliefs and this false aqidah that came, don't let anybody tell you that this was the, all of the scholars of Islam were upon this belief. Yes, there was a time when it was the predominant belief in the ummah. No doubt about that. But being the predominant belief doesn't make it right. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us if you follow most of the people on the earth, they will misguide you from the path of Allah. And the Prophet ﷺ told us, لا تزال طائفة من أمتي على الحق ظاهرين. There will never cease to be a group of my ummah clearly upon the truth. But from this we understand, just so we give this as a reply, I need that those people who will say all of the scholars of Islam are like this. And they don't cease, yani. every madhab says this. Yani. 
All of the scholars of Islam were this. All of the scholars of Islam were this. Then we say to them, we don't accept, having said that, having given them that argument that none of the scholars before the, in the first you know, 150 years, 200 years, whatever, were upon this belief. We then say to them, we also don't accept your argument from two other angles. Number one, we don't accept that there were not scholars upon the sunnah in those times. Because the Prophet ﷺ told us there will always remain a group of my ummah upon the truth. So there will always remain scholars who are upon the right belief. And secondly, we don't accept that those scholars that you mentioned, that all of them were Ash'ari. Especially an Nawawi and Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar. To be honest, uh, claiming that Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar was Ash'ari is extremely, extremely uh, factually incorrect. What is factually correct is to say that he fell into some of the things that the Ash'aris fell into in certain places. But he refuted them vociferously in other places. And in some places, Al-Hafid ibn Hajar refutes them and wipes the floor with them. And in other places, he falls into what they fell into. But the essence of the Ash'ari belief is preferring intellect over revelation. That is the essence of it. That is the core of this belief. And the thing that everything in Ash'ari Aqeedah comes back to, it is their belief that Al-Aqal Fawqal that the intellect is superior to revelation. That is their that is what everything they believe comes back to. Now if we apply that as a standard for Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar and Al Nawawi, we see that neither of those two were upon that belief. Both An-Nawawi and Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar clearly state that revelation is superior to the intellect. That revelation is superior to intellect. Therefore, if they both state that revelation is superior to intellect, how can you label them as being Ash'ari when they don't believe in the most fundamental thing that the Ash'ari believe in? Which is that intellect is superior to revelation. What you can say is that both of them fell into some of the Ash'ari beliefs with regard to the names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar less so than Al-Imam Al-Nawawi rahimahumullah. And Al-Nawawi was worse in that regard than Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar. But they fell into some of what they fell into. But as for labeling them like this, this is like not differentiating between the Shi'i, and between the one about whom it is said, Fihi tashayyu'. And there is one who it is said about him, he is Shi'i. And he has embraced the principles of Shi'ism. And there is one about whom it is said, Fihi tashayyu'. He has elements of Shi'i belief. For example, it is said about Al-Imam al-Nasai, rahimahullah ta'ala, Fihi tashayyu'. He had elements of Shi'i, Belief. What do they mean by that? A preference for Ali ibn Abi Talib عن, over Uthman, despite, despite affirming the virtue of Uthman and his validity as Khalifa. Yani, saying Uthman was a valid Khalifa and he was a virtuous person, but I believe that Ali would have been better. This is Tashayyur. 
This is an element of Shi'ism. However, it's not Shi'i belief. The person who says this is not Shi'i. They are not Shi'i. You cannot say they are Shi'i because they say that Ali would have been better as a Khalifa than Uthman. They have an element of Tashayyur. They have an element of Shi'ism. But it's not the complete picture and it's not fair to label them with that complete picture. Many people say that Al-Imam al-Nasai was unfairly labeled with that because of an incident that happened with the Emir of Palestine where he, uh, where he wrote a book about the virtue of Ali and refused to write anything about the virtue of Muawiyah. So it was said about him, Fihi Tashayyur, and he has some elements of Shi'ism, but that's probably not really true. But the point is that there is a difference between someone who has a sprinkling of a belief and someone who is a full card-carrying member of that belief. So it's not valid to say that Imam al-Nawawi and Imam al-Hafid ibn Hajar were Ashaira. Rather, we say that they had elements of Ashari belief and elements where they refuted it. Elements where they agreed and elements where they refused. And the biggest element, the concept that intellect is superior to the Qur'an and the Sunnah, they were absolutely free from. As for Al-Juwaini, Al-Juwaini was one of the Imams of the Ashaira and he was any Ash'ari through and through until the end of his life where he, uh, he repented from that. So inshallah that is worthwhile knowing. And inshallah ta'ala we will begin uh, the book. After Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Al Juwaini Rahimullah Ta'ala, he says in a section which he didn't entitle, but it is, in, it is usually given the title, Ma'na Usul al Fiqh, the meaning of Usul al Fiqh. We've covered this before, so we're just going to run over it very quickly. These few pieces of paper, Hadihi Warakat, these are a few pieces of paper, like a small reminder, a small note, a small set of notes which cover various topics, cover various fusul, various chapters. Min usul al-fiqh. And he says that you need to be aware, and I'm not going to translate directly, but I'm just, al-waraqat is available in English anyways, but I'm not going to translate directly, I'm just going to kind of give you the, the summary. That usul al-fiqh is made up of two separate words. Usul and fiqh. And we said this last time. He says, So al-asl ma bunya alayhi ghayruh. The meaning of al-asl, which the word usul comes from, is that which something else is built upon. A foundation, a fundamental principle. Something which something else is built upon. And he says al-fara' Al-fara' is the opposite of al-asl So we have al-asl and we have al-fara' uh, If you wanted an English word for al-asl and al-asl and al-fara' We would probably say root and branch Or And yeah, root and branch is a good word Al-asl wal fara' Al-asl is the root, the fundamental, the foundation And al-fara' is the branch The, the bit that gets built on top And he said al-fara'u ma yubna alayhi ghayru what is something else, what is built over something else. And then he goes on to say, Al-fiqh, 
Al-Fiqh, he defines يعني, Al-Fiqh as Ma'rifatul Ahkam al-Shari'ya Al-Lati Tariquha al-Ijtihad Knowing Islamic rulings For which the means of knowing them is al-Ijtihad So Al-Juwayni, Rahimahullah He defines Al-Fiqh As knowing Islamic rulings for which the means to know them is ijtihad. Briefly, we said fiqh in uh, uh, linguistically is uh, understanding. Bear in mind that understanding is more specific than knowledge. Because you may have knowledge of something but not understand it. You may have knowledge of something but you don't understand it. For example, you may have memorized something, but you don't understand what you have memorized. Or you may have knowledge of something in the, in the dunya, but you don't understand it properly. So fiqh is more specific than al-ilm. Ilm or knowledge is quite generic, and fiqh is more sort of specific fiqh is more like understanding the knowledge that you have and we said from this is the statement of the Prophet whoever Allah wants good for he gives him fiqh of the religion he gives him understanding of the religion he understands Islam he understands the deen as for the technical definition of fiqh the Islamic definition of fiqh, Al-Juwaini defines it as knowing Islamic rulings. And he knowing what is halal, knowing what is haram. Knowing what is recommended and what is disliked. Knowing what is allowed and what is not allowed. And this is a means to achieve Jannah. Because there is no means to achieve taqwa except with this. How can you be a person who has taqwa of Allah if you do not know what it is that you are avoiding and what it is you are supposed to be doing? You don't know which food is halal and which food is haram. You don't know which drink is halal and which drink is haram. You don't know which relationship is halal and which relationship is haram. So how will you be able after that to be from the muttaqeen? to be from the people who have taqwa. You cannot be from the people of taqwa unless you know the halal and the haram and what is recommended and what is disliked and what is allowed. And so fiqh is knowing Islamic rulings, knowing what is halal, knowing what is haram, knowing what is obligatory, what is recommended, what is disliked, what is a condition for this to be accepted, what is, uh, and what prevents something from being accepted. These are all part of knowing the, the rulings, shari rulings. For which the means of knowing them is ijtihad. The meaning of ijtihad we will come to later on the topic of al-mujtahid. But uh, ijtihad here is 
the ability to extract rulings from the texts. Ijtihad is the ability to extract rulings from their sources. The ability to extract rulings from their sources. And that is why you have a mujtahid and you have a muqallid. The mujtahid is the person who is able to extract rulings from their sources. And the muqallid is the one who is not able to extract rulings from their sources and therefore requires to take those rulings from someone who is able to extract them from their sources. And we'll cover this later on. But Al-Juwaini is linking fiqh to Al-Ijtihad in the sense that the means by which we know fiqh, how do we know what is halal and what is haram? Because there are people who go to the sources, they go to the Quran and the Sunnah, and they extract from that Quran and Sunnah what is halal and what is haram. And those people are the scholars of Islam. And to be more specific, the mujtahidun, the people who are the people of ijtihad, they go to the Quran and they go to the Sunnah and they extract the halal and the haram. Uh, and the halal and haram that they extract, this is what we term to be fiqh. Knowing this halal and haram, this is what we term to be fiqh. It's not what we term to be usul al-fiqh. Usul al-fiqh is the process by which those halal and haram are extracted. The means, the tools, the kit that you take with you to, to extract the halal and the haram from the Quran and the Sunnah. But the actual extraction and saying, okay, it is haram to commit zina. And it is halal or it is mandub, it is recommended to get married. So this process of actually doing it, we call this fiqh. This comes under the category of fiqh. What is halal and what is haram? This is the category of, of fiqh. But the, the method and the tools you use to take that out, those tools can be used on any ayah, on any hadith, on any... In any mas'ala, in any issue, marriage, buying, selling, halal, haram. And that is why usul al-fiqh is general and fiqh is specific. Because usul al-fiqh deals with the tools you can use for any ayah and any hadith. And it deals with the method of extraction which you use for any ayah or any hadith. Or any matter of consensus. It's not specific to a certain issue. And the tools are not like this tool is for ayah number 123 from Surah Al-Baqarah. No, these tools are generic for all of the ayat and all of the ahadith and all of the Islamic sources and evidences. As for fiqh, no. Fiqh is the specific things that you extract. Al-Adillat Al-Tafsiliyah, ayah number 101 from this surah benefits us this ruling in this particular issue. That is fiqh. As for usul al-fiqh, usul al-fiqh is how do you go to any ayah in the Quran and extract from it the wajib and the mandub and the mubah and the makruh and the haram. I mean, how do you extract those things from the sources? So usul al-fiqh 
is the supporting science upon which fiqh is built. Fiqh is one of the most fundamental Islamic sciences because one of our fundamental, if you like, jobs in Islam is to know the halal and the haram. Therefore, fiqh is a major, and in knowing what is right and what is wrong and acting upon it, is one of the major uh, jobs and responsibilities that we have. As for usul al-fiqh, it is a supporting science. It's the ladder with which we ascend to be able to apply those rules to al-fiqh. And as we said yes, uh, last week, it is not specific to fiqh either, to be honest. Usul al-fiqh is a science which is called usul al-fiqh because primarily it is used in fiqh. Any primarily it is used in fiqh. However, usul al-fiqh is also used in aqidah. Because aqidah at the end of the day is going to the sources that deal with the topic of belief and extracting what you have to believe and what you must not believe and what you should believe and so on. Therefore, you cannot extract aqidah from the Qur'an and the sunnah without usul al-fiqh. Otherwise, how will you know what it is you are supposed to believe and what it is that you are not allowed to believe? However, it's called usul al-fiqh and not usul al-aqidah because its primary usage is in fiqh. And so this is what we call, any, uh, for example, isti'mal al-ghalib. It's what you mostly use it for. Because you mostly use it for fiqh, so it's called usul al-fiqh. Or it's called usul al-fiqh because al-fiqh is wider than just the halal and the haram. Al-fiqh also includes understanding of the religion, understanding of our belief, understanding of the importance of following the sunnah and so on, all of these are a part of fiqh in a general sense. So you can either say usul al-fiqh is the foundation upon which all understanding is based, or you can say that usul al-fiqh is the foundation of fiqh and that's where it's mostly used. However, it's also used in other fields as well. And there is an overlap, as we said, between usul al-fiqh and usul al-hadith, or what is often called mustalah, Al-Hadith, the science of Hadith. Al-Juwani rahimullah ta'ala then goes on to talk about Al-Ahkam al-Shari'iyah. Islamic rulings. So is he going to tell you the ruling of zakah? Is he going to tell you who zakatul fitr is obligatory for? No, he's not going to tell you that because that belongs in the books of fiqh, not in the books of usul. He's going to categorize all of the rulings of Islam into seven categories. The first is 
الواجب The first is الواجب What is واجب What is واجب واجب is that which you are rewarded for doing and punished for leaving that which you are rewarded for doing and punished for leaving there are a couple of footnotes we need to make to that because that is true in a general sense but it's also not always true especially with regard to being punished for leaving it this is i mean this is the general definition that most of the scholars give you're rewarded for doing it and punished for leaving it but there are some elements to note with regard to reward you are rewarded for doing it on the condition that you do it in the way that you have been required to do it with the correct intention and so on yani because every for every deed to be accepted has two conditions it has to be for the sake of allah and it has to be in accordance with the sunnah of the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam you can say that that is included in the definition because having sincerity for allah azza wa jalla is in itself wajib and likewise following the sunnah you're not rewarded for not following the sunnah therefore and it's quite possible to argue that both of those points come underneath the word what you are rewarded for doing but just so we are clear let's give an example if a non-muslim comes into the masjid now and prays al-duha will it be accepted from them no it will not be accepted from them because they are missing a fundamental condition of acceptance which is islam and all of the scholars agree that the salah is not accepted from someone who is not a muslim if a non-muslim fasts the month of ramadan as many do here in dubai a non-muslim fasts the month of ramadan it's not accepted from them because at the end of the day they are not they are missing one of the conditions of acceptance if someone comes in to pray al-duha and he prays it with the intention of showing off and being praised then it's not accepted from him because he is missing the condition of sincerity for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if someone comes in and prays salatul asr now at this time it's not accepted from them because they are praying it before its proper time but that being aside that is understood i mean that is everyone understands that 
and that will come later in the book also that we will cover these uh, conditions where it's more important to, to leave a footnote is that which you are punished for not doing there are several cases where you are not punished in fact it would be better if they said what is deserving of punishment if you leave it that would be a better definition than saying what you are punished for leaving what is deserving of punishment if you leave it because leaving the wajib is deserving of punishment this is what ahl sunnah agreed upon that leaving the wajib is deserving of punishment if you don't pray dhuhr you are deserving of punishment will you be punished that depends first of all if you make tawbah man taba taba allahu alayhi whoever makes tawbah allah will accept his tawbah that's the first thing the second thing the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said that my ummah has been relieved from ignorance and forgetting and what they are forced to do so somebody forces you to drink alcohol and yet gunpoint they put a gun to your head and they force you to drink alcohol so this is not punishable in islam or you forgot to pray fajr you didn't remember at all without any negligence on your part you went to bed early you set your alarm but you just forgot that you didn't pray fajr and now when we are talking about oh subhan i didn't pray fajr this morning so this person will not be punished because allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not punish the one who forgets likewise the one who left a wajib because he didn't know that it was wajib and he's not negligent be careful because there are some things you didn't know and you are punished for because negligence is it's negligent not to know it and you are blameworthy not, not to know it but there are some things that people don't know about they are wajib but the person doesn't know that they had didn't know that they had to do it so again allah subhanahu wa ta'ala out of his mercy and his generosity has relieved this ummah from ignorance and forgetfulness and what they are forced to do so we have a tauba as an exception and we have some kinds of ignorance not all kinds of ignorance but some kinds of ignorance because there are some things you cannot be ignorant about someone says i was praying to an idol because i didn't know that in islam you're not allowed to pray to an idol this is not an acceptable form of ignorance but there are other forms of ignorance which are more and if someone was rushing in their prayer because they didn't know that you have to stay still in each place this is more acceptable and in the sense that you explain to them and you don't ask them to repeat their prayer and you just explain to them that you have to you have to be more slow in each position you be, behave more slowly in each position of the prayer as we said ignorance forgetfulness some types of ignorance and forgetfulness and what you are forced compelled to do 
Be careful what you are forced to do also has rules and regulations. I mean, you cannot just say like, oh, the guy said, look, please don't pray. So then I was forced not to pray. And you have to be in fear of your life. You have to be in fear that, you know, that something very serious is going to happen to you, a serious, like serious injury or serious harm. It cannot be somebody who is just like somebody said to him, don't pray, otherwise I'll get really angry with you. And then you didn't pray. But in general, we understood these three categories. The last one that we have to make is the exception. Is the one who dies having abandoned a wajib and has not made tawbah. So the person is, is, let's say, for example, let's say an abandoning a wajib, has been bad to his parents. He has abandoned being good to his parents. He's left being good to his parents. And he has not repented for that. And he dies without having repented from that. And being bad to your parents is a major sin. It's not a small sin. He is within the Mashiach of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, within the will of Allah. If Allah wills, He will forgive him. And if Allah wills, He will punish him. So a person may die drinking alcohol, and Allah may forgive them. This is something a lot of people don't understand. And sadly, a lot of people would say, for example, this person is kafir because he died drinking alcohol and he did not repent from it. No, it's not the case. A person who dies with a major sin, if Allah wills, he will punish him. And if Allah wills, he will forgive him. And that is why it is better to say that the wajib is that which you are rewarded for doing and you are deserving of punishment if you leave it. You are deserving of punishment. Does that mean you will definitely be punished? No. That just means that you are deserving of punishment. The person who dies committing zina, are they deserving of punishment? Yes. They deserve to be punished. Will they be punished? That is in the hands of Allah. If Allah wills, He will punish them. And if Allah wills, He will overlook. But some people must be punished. Why do we say some people must be punished? Because Allah said, وَمَنْ أَصْدَقُ مِنَ اللَّهِ قِيلًا Who is more truthful than Allah in speech? And Allah promised punishment for those who do these sins. Therefore, if Allah was to forgive the entire world for doing them, what would happen? His speech would be untruthful. And if Allah was to forgive all of mankind for it, then his speech would be untruthful. And therefore we say the punishment must happen to at least some people. Otherwise, the speech of Allah would not be truthful. However, Allah overlooks however many he wishes to overlook and punishes however many he wishes to punish. But the punishment must happen to at least some people. So when we kind of clean that definition up a bit, then a wajib is that which you are rewarded for doing and are deserving of punishment for leaving. Can we give an example of the wajib? Let's give an example of the five daily prayers for the one whom the conditions of praying apply to them. We have to put that disclaimer because what if we say the five daily prayers and a woman says, I'm on my menses. 
am I deserving of punishment for not praying? We say, no, you're not deserving of punishment for not praying. In fact, if you prayed, you would be deserving of punishment. So the five daily prayers for the one who is required to pray them. Meaning, the Muslim who is, has reached the age of puberty and is, has full possession of their intellect and is free of any reason why they are not required to pray. Such as menses and postnatal bleeding and other things. So an example of al-wajib, the five daily prayers for the person who is required to pray them. The second category is al-mandub. Al-mandub. Some people call it al-mustahab. The proper word we use in usul al-fiqh is al-mandub. That's the word we use in usul al-fiqh, al-mandub. And that is that which is rewarded for doing and there is no punishment for the one who leaves it. So you are rewarded for doing it, but there is no punishment if you leave it. Can we give an example of that? Let's stick on the theme of the prayer and say, Two raka'ah after Salat al-Zuhr. Two raka'ah after Faridat al-Zuhr, after the obligatory prayer of Zuhr. This two raka'ah, if you pray it, are you rewarded? Yes, if you pray it in the right way, with the right intention, according to the sunnah, then you are rewarded for praying it. Are you punished if you leave it? No, there is no punishment for leaving it. Therefore, it comes under the category of al-mandub, i.e. al-mustahab, that which is recommended. So the wajib in English we would say the obligatory, and the mandub we would say is the recommended. It's also worth noting, and just while we're on this topic, that until now we haven't entered into the main topic of usul al-fiqh. This is still the Introduction, because usul al-fiqh itself doesn't deal with these categories. But these categories are kind of like telling someone before they go into the mine and start digging, look, this is gold and this is tin and this is copper and you should recognize what each of these things are. We then come to al-mubah. Al-mubah is that which there is no reward for doing and no punishment for leaving. There is no reward for doing and there is no punishment for leaving. For example, right now, I'm sitting on this chair. What is the ruling of me sitting on this chair as opposed to standing or sitting on the floor? It is mubah. There is no reward for me sitting on a chair versus sitting on the floor or standing up. And there is no punishment for me sitting on the chair versus sitting on the floor or standing up. The next category, Al-Mahdur. 
And al-mahdhur is often called al-haram. And in some of the scholars, they will, they will say it is al-wajib, wal-mandub, wal-mubah, wal-haram. Wal-mahdhur. And al-mahdhur is al-haram. The two are the same. Al-mahdhur, that which you are rewarded for leaving and punished for doing. Again, punished for doing, put in brackets, deserving of punishment for doing. Because actually you may not be punished for doing the haram. You may not be punished for doing the haram, depending on whether Allah Azzawajal overlooks or not, whether you have made tawbah or not, whether you forgot or not, whether you knew or not, whether you were compelled or not. But the basic concept of the haram, when you leave it, you get a reward. And when you do it, you put yourself in danger of punishment. We give an example of that, drinking alcohol. If a person drinks alcohol, they are at risk of punishment. And if they don't drink alcohol consciously, then they are rewarded. If they don't drink alcohol because they just didn't remember to drink it, then they are not rewarded for that. But if they consciously choose not to drink alcohol because they know that Allah made it haram, then they are rewarded for not drinking alcohol. Providing it is done sincerely for the sake of Allah. And again, any the haram has to be avoided in accordance with the sunnah. So again, and you have to, like these are general definitions, but there are some exceptions, there are some rules and regulations. Like we said, a person may avoid the haram because he just doesn't remember to do it. And that person is not rewarded. Or he doesn't get time to do it. It's like I wanted to drink alcohol, but when I came back from work, it was so late, I just went to sleep. This person is not rewarded for leaving, drinking alcohol. But if he has an intention that this is for the sake of Allah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited me from drinking this alcohol and therefore I'm not going to drink alcohol, then this person is rewarded for not drinking alcohol. And if he drinks it, he is in danger of or under threat of punishment and deserving of punishment. And al-makruh. Al-makruh. Al-makruh is that which you are rewarded for leaving and there is no punishment if you do it. For example, drinking, standing up. If you take a glass of water and you consciously, again, sit down because you know that that is the sunnah, then you are rewarded for doing that. But if you drink standing up, there is no sin on you for drinking standing up. There is no sin. 
But if you don't do it, then you get rewarded. Again, you have to be conscious of that and you have to be sincere for the sake of Allah when doing that. But that's an example. Drinking water, standing up. If you leave it, you get rewarded. And if you do it, you don't get any punishment. That doesn't mean that it's good for you. You may lose some of the benefits because the makruh is only makruh because it is harmful. Some of the scholars said the difference between the haram and the makruh is the haram is harmful always. And the makruh is harmful if you do it frequently. For example, drinking water standing up. Ibn al-Qayyim rahimullah ta'ala said, when you drink water standing up, very little of that water is absorbed by the body. And it goes straight in and, and straight out. Imagine if you drank standing up every time. You would end up getting some harm. You would become dehydrated. You would become, and he like, you might get a weak bladder. If you did it every time. But if you did it from time to time, it would not harm you anything. And this is really the, the key to the makruh. It is something which the occasional doing of it doesn't hurt you. But when you do it regularly, yes, you can have some harm that comes about. However, even if you do it regularly, there is no sin. Even if I drink water standing up every time, there is no sin on me. Even if I never ever sit down in my life to drink water, there is no sin on me. But yes, I could come to a harm. Because at the end of the day, the makruh is there for a reason. It's not there like, it's not imaginary. I mean, it's there for some real reason. And that real reason is that if it is done frequently and regularly, it is harmful. And I also want to make clear about the makruh. That the makruh has to have a dalil for it as well. And you can't just... You can't just uh, Invent something as being makruh. Like some people, they have this idea, look, the wajib and the haram, they have to have a dalil. But the makruh is whatever like people don't like. And you know, makruh is what people don't like, but, but it's still halal in Islam. That's not the case. For something to be makruh, you have to have an evidence for it to be makruh. And there are some issues that are modern issues and, and things that people bring up and they will say, this is makruh. Say, Bring your proof if you are truthful. You cannot just say something is makruh. Al-asl, al-jawaz. And the basic principle of everything is that it's permissible in the dunya. And the basic principle in the deen is what? That it's haram. And al-asl of al-deen al-tahrim. The basic principle that we start out for in the religion is that everything is haram. Everything in Islam is haram except what there is a specific proof that it's not haram. That's in the religion, worship. As for the dunya, the opposite is true. Al-asl, al-ibaha. The basic principle 
is that everything in the dunya is halal. Someone says, what is your evidence that mango juice is halal? Did the Prophet ﷺ eat mangoes? No. Did the Sahaba eat mangoes? Not that we know of. Khalas haram. No, because in the dunya, the basic principle is everything is halal unless you have a specific evidence otherwise. And therefore you cannot say something is makruh because you happen to dislike it. Rather to say something is makruh, you have to have an evidence for it, that it is makruh. Otherwise, we go back to the basic principle, which is that everything in the religion is haram, except what there is an evidence for, and everything in the dunya, or in the worldly life, and everything outside of worship is halal, except what there is an evidence for. And likewise, another area people get confused about the makruh and the haram is that people think that if something isn't specifically mentioned in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, it cannot be haram. For example, smoking. They say smoking is not mentioned in the Qur'an and the Sunnah specifically. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't say وَحَرَّمْنَا عَلَيْكُمُ التَّدْخِينَ We have made smoking haram for you. So people say, okay, if it's not mentioned in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, it can only be makruh. Yani that can be the maximum level. That is not true. None of the usuliyun said this. Rather, there are things which are unanimously haram. By ijma' they are haram. which are not mentioned in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And it's enough that the Qur'an and the Sunnah give us principles of what is haram. So killing yourself is haram. And wasting your money is haram. And harming other people is haram. And those have evidences for them in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Therefore, if something comes along which involves killing yourself and wasting your money and harming other people, how do you say it's makruh? cannot be makruh. It has to be haram because the sharia and the shari' Azza wa Jal, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the legislator, made things which harm other people and kill yourself and waste your money to be haram. In the Quran and the Prophet sallallahu made them haram in the sunnah. So it's not the case like some people have the idea if the word is mentioned specifically, it's haram. And otherwise it's makruh. No, again, there are rules and regulations about what is haram and what is makruh, and that is the purpose of usul al-fiqh. That you learn what is, or how you know that something is haram, and how you know that something is any makruh, and so on. Al-Juwaini rahimahullah mentions two more. Al-Sahih and Al-Batil. Al-Sahih and Al-Batil. Al-Sahih is that which is valid. We'll just go through the English names of the others. We said Al-Wajib is the obligatory, Al-Mandub is recommended, Al-Mubah is permissible, Al-Mahdur is forbidden, and Al-Makruh is disliked. 
As-Sahih is that which is valid. And Al-Batil is that which is invalid. That is the meaning here, at least. To give a definition of a sahih, try and give you a simple definition of a sahih, that which is valid. Uh, we could say something like that for which the effect of the ruling comes into play or is. Uh, that for which the effect of the ruling is uh, applied. So let's explain that with an example. Marriage. Marriage. Some, a marriage contract is sahih when the outcome of that contract is that the couple are married. A marriage contract is sahih, is valid, when the outcome of that contract is that the couple are married. And a marriage is batil, is invalid, when the outcome of that contract is that the couple are not married. For example, two people get married. They have shahid adal two witnesses. They have the wali, the girl's guardian. There is al-ijab wal-qabul. The guardian says, I offer you my daughter in marriage. And the groom says, I accept. The husband and the wife are known. It's not like you're married to one of those girls over there. And you're like, it's a specific woman. And she's known by her name, by her, and her description. And so he's not confused about who he's marrying. The mahar is stipulated, and so on and so forth. What is the outcome of that contract? The outcome is that they become husband and wife, and intimacy becomes permissible for them, and the woman inherits from him if he dies, and all of the other stuff that happens when people are married. Right? Why did those things apply? They applied because the nikah was sahih, it was valid. Now we have a boy and a girl run away together. And they go to their friend's house and their friend says, Okay, do you accept each other as husband and wife? The guy says yes. The girl says yes. What is the outcome of that? Are they married? No, they are not married. Is it halal for them to be intimate with one another? No. If the man dies, will the woman inherit from him? No. If the woman dies, will the man inherit from him? No. Will the children take the name of the father? No. Because this is nikahun batil. This is an invalid nikah. Therefore, the effects of that nikah are not applied. There is no application or the outcome of that is not applied. I mean, there is no outcome of it. We could give the example of buying and selling. 
I sell you something that I own. You are clear about what I'm selling to you. You're clear about the price. We agree upon it. You give me the money. I give you the possession of the item. You leave the majlis. I leave the majlis. What is the outcome of this? The outcome of this is a transfer of ownership. Ownership now transferred from me to you. Why did ownership transfer from me to you? Because it was bay'un sahih. It was an act of tra a transaction which was valid. Okay, I sold you something I don't own. I will sell you an apartment in the Burj Khalifa. But I don't own an apartment in the Burj Khalifa. But I sold it to you. What is the outcome? Did you now, are you now the proud new owner of an apartment in the Burj Khalifa? No. The outcome is nothing. Except and you got like fleeced and you got like tricked. But the outcome is, is nothing. There is no outcome. There is no transfer of ownership. The outcome is not applied. The ruling is not applied. Because I sold you what I didn't own. And selling something that you don't own renders the contract batil. It becomes invalid. So we understand that the things that we do, whether they are transactions or whether they are acts of yani, ibadat or mu'amalat, yani, even the salah, we can give an example. You prayed the salah without tahara and without a valid excuse for missing tahara. What's the ruling of your salah? Salah is batila. Okay, what is the effect of that? The effect of that is that you have to repeat the salah. You are no longer said to have prayed. It's not written in your account that you prayed. Because you prayed without tahara and without an excuse for missing it. Someone may pray without tahara, but with an excuse. Like the one who is suffering from istihada, regular bleeding. The woman who is suffering from regular bleeding. She makes wudu before the salah and she goes to the salah and the blood comes while she is praying. So she's praying without tahara, but her salah is sahiha. It's valid. Because she has an excuse. But someone prays without tahara, without purification, and without an excuse for not having purification. What is the ruling of their salah? It's batila. So they have to do qada, they have to make up their salah. It's not written that they prayed. They are not allowed to just let it go. The outcome of the salah is not applied. You pray your prayer properly and with all of its conditions, what is the outcome? The outcome is there is no qada, there is no making up the prayer. And the prayer is written for you as you having prayed it. So this prayer is sahiha, it's valid. And so on. So whether in ibadat or mu'amalat, there are things which make something valid or invalid. When something is valid, how do you define what is valid? You say oh, it's conditioned. No, simply what is valid is when the outcome of that action is applied, is effective. And we give effect to the outcome. We give effect to the outcome. When something is invalid is when we do not give effect to the outcome.
So we do not consider the marriage took place. We do not consider the prayer was prayed. We do not consider the transaction, the ownership changed. So the outcome was not applied, was no longer valid. So that is al-sahih and al-batil, that which is valid and that which is invalid. this point if I can figure out how to do this At this point, it's worth noting that in many books of Usul al-Fiqh, and in fact the standard with regard to Usul al-Fiqh, is to split these rulings up with the first five in their own category and the last two in their own category with other things, which Al-Juwaini Rahimahullah Ta'ala didn't mention. So generally, we break up the ahkam, the rulings, into two categories. Al-ahkam al-taklifiyyah and al-ahkam al-wadiyyah. Al-ahkam al-taklifiyyah are those things which are taklif, yani they are like obligatory, haram, recommended, disliked, permissible. The first five. Those are relating to the ruling of the action. And then generally the usuliyun divide the second half or they, they have the second half which are al-ahkam al-wadiyya and these don't relate to a like a, a ruling like it being obligatory for you or haram for you but they are more if you like supporting rulings I just wanted to go over them because not all of them are not all of them are uh, are clear. What is the difference between the rulings which are taklifiyah and the rulings which are wadiyah? And I don't know, I, I've never found a good uh, English term for that. You can look in the translation uh, if you find one. And it's not, there's not a great, and it's not like 
however you explain you can find a term for it but they don't like it's easier to explain what the difference is the rulings which relate to taklif they are rulings which relate to your actions and things that you are able to do for example whether you do something or not, whether you are rewarded or not, whether you leave something or not, whether you are rewarded or not for leaving something or doing something. That relates to what you do and what you are able to do. As for al-hukm al-wadi'i, then most of the time it isn't related to what you are able to do. And it's not related to your like specific actions. It's more of a general uh, description, which isn't down to whether you'd left it or didn't leave it, I mean, generally. Otherwise, the issue gets long and there's a long discussion about what the difference is between the two. But you know, to, to be honest, the easiest way to understand it is just to remember that Haram and wajib and whatever They are taklifi They are related to a taklif Related to what you are commanded to do And the others which we're going to cover now Are related to al-wada yani Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put them in place As being like this yani Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Revealed that certain, or put in place that certain things will be conditions and certain things will be impediments as it will become clear as we go through. Okay. So, what are the rest of al ahkam al wadiyah? What are the rest of the these rulings which are not related to what we do and what we know and what we're able? What are the rest of them apart from al sahih? And al-batil, also as well as al-batil, and often people use al-sihha wal fasad. They use uh, instead of sahih and batil, they talk about al-sihha, any validity, and al-fasad, any corruption, any something being invalid, validity and invalidity. Anyways, the first one is al-sabab. In the Arabic language, a sabab is something which leads you. A sabab is a, a cause. In English, we would say a cause. A sabab is something which leads you to your intended goal. In English, we would call it a cause. A cause. It leads you to your intended goal. For this reason in the Quran when the story of Dhil Qarnayn comes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Thumma atba'a sababa. Then he followed a sabab. What is a sabab here in this ayah? A road. A sabab in this ayah is a road. Why is a road called a sabab? Why is a road called a cause? Because it causes you to reach your destination. 
It causes you to be able to reach your destination. And therefore, the Arabs call a tariq a sabab. They call a road a cause. Because it causes you to reach your destination. And like in the story of Dhil Qarnayn, then he followed a sabab, i.e. he followed a road. He followed a way which led him to his goal. The easiest definition of a sabab in usul al-fiqh, there are lots, but the easiest one I can give you is what we would say in Arabic and let's see if we can get this right in English let's see if I can get this right in English because this is like a tongue twister it's easy in Arabic but it's a little bit of a tongue twister in English that if it is present then the ruling is present and if it is absent then the ruling is absent If it is present, then the ruling is present, and if it is absent, then the ruling is absent. Let's give some examples. The time for prayer. If it's not time for dhuhr, is the ruling for dhuhr present? Like now, right now, is it wajib for me to pray dhuhr? Why are you saying to me it's not wajib to pray dhuhr? Dhuhr is wajib. We just covered this in the, in the category of wujub. We said the salawatul khams, the five daily prayers for the one who prays them, dhuhr is wajib. So why is dhuhr not wajib for me now? Because the time for dhuhr has not come. In other words, dhuhr does not become wajib until the time for dhuhr is present. And when the time for dhuhr is present, then the, the ruling is present. When the time for dhuhr is present, the ruling, what is the ruling of dhuhr? Al-wujub, and it's wajib. The, the ruling for dhuhr is present. And when the time for dhuhr is absent, the ruling of dhuhr is absent. So it's no longer wajib. Dhuhr is only wajib for as long as that cause exists. As soon as that cause ceases to exist, it ceases to become wajib. 
Of course, that brings us to a different issue of al-qadha and other issues like that, but that's a whole separate ruling. I'm just talking about praying dhuhr yani in its normal time. It's, I've prayed dhuhr at dhuhr time. It's not necessary for me to pray dhuhr at asr time. The only time that I pray dhuhr is while that cause is active. And while it's on, dhuhr is on. Dhuhr is wajib. When it's off, it's off. Dhuhr is not wajib. What about one for permissibility? When is there a sabab for permissibility? When is there a cause of permissibility? What about eating pork? What about eating pork? So is it always permissible to eat pork or only sometimes permissible to eat pork? Sometimes. For example, al-ittirar. In a case of necessity, you have no other food except that and you fear for yourself that you will die. So as long as you have no other food except pork and as long as you fear that you will die, then at that time, while those conditions are present, which we call al-ittirar, like being it being a case of necessity, while there is a case of necessity, you can eat it. And as soon as there is no longer a case of necessity, you can no longer eat it. Okay. What about inheritance, for example? Death is the cause of inheritance. Can my children inherit from me now? No, not unless I die. Because until I die, they can't inherit from me. Death is a cause of inheritance. And of course, I will be, and once I die, I will be dead. So I will, it's not, that one doesn't switch off because I don't stop being dead. But once you, you, are only, you can only inherit from someone who died. So the ruling of inheritance, inheritance being wajib, for example, only applies once the person has died. There is another category, because these are things that are not from your actions any. Did you have a choice when dhuhr time starts and ends? Can you like move dhuhr? Can we say like, guys... Forget Dhuhr being at 12.15 today. Now to today Dhuhr is going to be at 2 o'clock. And Dhuhr is not valid before 2 o'clock. We can't do this. It's not from our choice. But there are asbab causes that are from our choice. For example, the permissibility of eating in Ramadan. We choose to travel in Ramadan. And so it becomes permissible once we have begun traveling. It becomes permissible for us to to eat in Ramadan. Okay, when we return home, then that's it. Now the next day you return home, you have to fast. <coughs> Stealing is a cause of a prescribed punishment, the cutting of the hand. Is it allowed for me to cut off someone's hand if they didn't steal? No, it's not allowed. 
Is it allowed for the judge to command to cut off someone's hand if they didn't steal? No, it's not allowed. So stealing is a sabab of al-qata'. It's a sabab for having the hand cut off. What allowed the hand to be cut off by the judge or the, any, the court? What allowed for the hand to be cut off? It was stealing. When that person stole a certain amount over a certain value in a certain way, it then became obligatory for the court to cut off their hand. So you've understood, inshallah, a cause, a sabab, a cause. Okay. The second one we're going to do, that was number one, a cause. So we've understood a cause. Number two, a shart. Shart is a condition. What is a condition? In the Arabic language, a condition is a sign. A sign for something. Okay, another tongue twister. I much prefer these in Arabic. I hate these in, doing these in English. مَا يَلْزَمُ مِنْ عَدَمِهِ الْعَدَمِ وَلَا يَلْزَمُ مِنْ وُجُودِهِ الْوُجُودِ That which if it is absent, the ruling is absent. But if it is present, the ruling is not necessarily present. What did we say for a sabab? That which if it is absent, the ruling is absent. And if it's present, the ruling is present. Any absent equals absent, present equals present. For a condition, absent equals absent. And if the condition is absent, the ruling is absent. The condition is not there, the ruling is not there. But if the condition is present, it doesn't necessarily mean that the ruling is present. Again, giving uh, examples will help. The condition of purification for the validity of the prayer. Or let's not confuse, let's give a different example so that we have different, different examples for each one. The condition of covering the aura in the prayer. The condition of covering the aura in the prayer. If you don't cover your aura in the prayer while you're able to do so and you don't do it, your prayer is not valid. But just the fact that you covered the aura doesn't make the prayer valid in itself. Okay, I covered my aura and I prayed one rak'ah for dhuhr. Is my dhuhr prayer valid? 
No, but we just said I covered my aura. Covering the aura is a shart, it's a condition. So I covered my aura. What's the problem if I prayed one rak'ah? You say no. Because just because you pray, just because you did it, doesn't mean that your prayer was valid. But if you didn't do it, your prayer would be invalid. That is a shart. At this point, someone may be paying attention and say, hold on a second, what about the time for the prayer? Is the time for the prayer a shart or a sabab? It actually depends on what you are speaking about. If you're speaking about the obligation of dhuhr, then the time for prayer is a sabab. Because as soon as the time for prayer comes, dhuhr is obligatory. If you're talking about the point of view of the validity of the prayer, the prayer being correct or incorrect, then in this case, the person being sure of the time is a condition. And just because I prayed dhuhr at the right time doesn't mean that my dhuhr prayer is valid. So in the first time when we were talking about time, we were talking about what? We're talking about the time relating to whether dhuhr is wajib or not. This is a sabab, meaning when dhuhr is wajib, when the time for dhuhr comes, instantly dhuhr becomes wajib. When the time for dhuhr comes, instantly dhuhr becomes wajib. And the proof for that, relating to the woman on her menses, that her menses start, let's say for example, at 3 p.m. Okay, did dhuhr become wajib for her yet or not? Yeah, dhuhr became wajib for her. So many of the scholars said that she has to, when she becomes pure, she has to pray that salat of dhuhr. She's not blameworthy, but she has to pray that salat of dhuhr. Because it became wajib for her. And it became wajib for her, but she did not pray it. Because it was not, she did not do anything haram, because she has until the end of the time. But it became wajib for her. It did not, you cannot stop it becoming wajib for her. Like it became wajib because the time came when she was in a state where she was able to pray. So it became wajib for her. Dhuhr became wajib. As for the time as a condition, this is when we talk about the validity of the prayer. We say, min shurut salah, dukhul waqt. That the right time, the time having come, is a condition of the prayer. Meaning, was the prayer valid? We don't know if your prayer was valid or not. But if you prayed outside of the time, then definitely your prayer is invalid. And if I prayed dhuhr 10 minutes before dhuhr starts, like some people do in the airport, they say, Wallah, my flight is 12.15, so I'm going to pray dhuhr at 12 o'clock. We say your salah is invalid. Salatun batila, fasida. And your salah is invalid, you have to repeat your prayer. Because you prayed dhuhr before it's time. So you understood the difference here. In one, we are talking about the ruling of dhuhr being wajib. In the other, we're talking about is the prayer valid or not valid. If we're talking about whether the prayer is valid or not valid, then time is a condition for the prayer. 
If we're talking about whether the prayer is wajib or not wajib, then time is a cause for the prayer. So it depends in what angle you look at it. In all of these examples, or in some of these examples, there are some areas of contention, like sometimes. Like, so don't believe that every example you are given in books of usul al-fiqh is necessarily valid. I mean, some of them have some issues around it. So one of the examples they give is that a year is a year going by for a zakah. Now, if they say a year going by for the obligation of zakah, then yes. A year going by for the obligation of zakah is a condition. If they say a year going by for the validity of zakah, then this is not true. Because you can pay zakah before the year goes by. You can pay zakah early. However, for the obligation, for zakah to become obligatory, for zakah to become obligatory, a year must go by. An Islamic year. Otherwise, it's not obligatory. Someone says, I have 100,000 dirhams in savings. Okay, how long have you had that 100,000 dirhams? Eight months. Okay, there is no, your zakah is not wajib. Does the fact that a year has gone by mean that zakah has to be wajib? Not yet, we don't know because there are other conditions like an nisab, it should have reached a set amount, it should have reached the right amount for the zakah, and so on and so forth. I mean, there are, there are conditions for the zakah. So, this is an example of a condition. I mean, if the year hasn't gone by, there's no obligation. If the year hasn't gone by, there's no obligation. But if the year has gone by, that doesn't mean there's an obligation. We still don't know if there's an obligation. There needs to be more conditions. If all of the conditions are present, then yes. So for example, from the conditions of zakah is that a year must go by. That the wealth must be the kind of wealth upon which zakah is due. That the wealth must have reached the set limit of the zakah and that you must have complete ownership of the wealth these are conditions of the zakah if any one of them is true or in other words we start again if any one of them is false then there is no zakah which is obligatory but if one of them is true we don't know for certain that zakah is obligatory unless all of them are true so for example one says okay I have a hundred thousand dirhams and a year's gone by, and dirhams are wealth that I, you know, I, I pay on, and, and 100,000 is above the nisab. Is my zakah due? The faqih says, asks a question. He says, do you own that 100,000 dirhams? Is it yours? He says, no, it's, an, I mean, it's not mine. I, like, uh, 
I've, I've got it in the form of a, a check that hasn't been submitted into my account yet. Like it's a, it's a post-dated check and it hasn't been submitted into my account yet. We say then this requires more information. So here we have the issue of a shart. Shart is something. If it is absent, then the ruling is absent. But if it is present, we still have to ask more questions before we can say that the sh for certain that the ruling is present. We still have to ask more questions before we can say for certain that the ruling is present. Okay. Now we come on to number three, which is al-mani'ah. Al-mani'ah. Al-mani'ah is what we would say in English, an impediment. An impediment. Something which blocks something. Something which prevents something. Okay. We do another tongue twister for this one. I'm going to have so much fun with this in the multiple, multiple choice exam. Okay. Its presence necessitates the absence of the ruling. And it must be the case. If it is present, the ruling must be absent. But if it is absent, the ruling does not have to be present if it is present the ruling must not apply yani present equals ruling does not apply absent equals question mark we don't know for sure perhaps we can give an example Breaking your wudu. For example, I just make it clear. For example, breaking wind. Breaking wind, if it is present, necessitates that your prayer is does not take place. It's not valid. But the fact that you didn't break wind, does that mean that you prayed? Not necessarily. You may not have prayed. You may say, okay, I made wudu and I didn't break wind. Does that mean that I am, my prayer is valid? Not necessarily. Someone says, I was praying in the saf and I broke wind. What does that mean? Okay, for sure your prayer is not valid. Now you have to go and make wudu again. Unless you have Unless you are from those people that there is a valid exception. Like for example, those people who cannot control themselves, they have a medical illness. And they are the same as the woman who has irregular bleeding. They are in the same ruling. They pray however they pray and they just finish their prayer. But most people, the person says, okay, I made wudu and I didn't break my wudu. Is my prayer valid? So we'll see how well you know your usul. You say to him, not necessarily. Tell me how did you pray? When did you pray? What did you pray? Did you finish all of the conditions? Did you pray all of the rulings? Did you make ruku'ah? Did you make sujood? Did you do the right number of raka'at? 
Did you so and so on and so forth. So we don't just because you didn't break wind doesn't mean that you prayed. But if you did break wind, then for definite your prayer is not accepted. Okay. Let's give another example in inheritance. Having a different religion to the person you are inheriting from. So you are a Muslim and the person you are inheriting from, let's say for example a parent, is not a Muslim. You are a Muslim and the person you are inheriting from is not a Muslim. This is a mani' an impediment. In other words, if you are not if you are a Muslim and they are not a Muslim, there is no way you can inherit from them. The Prophet said, La al Muslim al Kafir al-Kafir al-Muslim. A Muslim does not inherit from a Kafir, nor does a Kafir inherit from a Muslim. Okay. The fact that I am Muslim and my parents are and my dead parent is Muslim. Does that necessarily mean that I inherit? No. There are conditions and situations in which I might not. For example, if I was the one who killed them, then the killer does not inherit from the one who, whom he killed. Which is quite obvious and makes a lot of sense. Because otherwise, they would do like you know, they do in the West and you know, kill somebody in order to get their inheritance. In Islam, if you kill somebody, you cannot inherit from them, for example. Or there may be other impediments. For example, I am the same religion as the person who died, but I'm not their relative who inherits. I'm not their son, for example. I'm not their father. I'm not their husband. Therefore, Yes, I am the same religion, but just being the same religion, does that mean I inherit? No. Yes, I'm the same religion, but unless I am the same religion and I am one of the assigned people mentioned in the Quran and I'm not guilty of killing them and, 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 and only when all of those things are present and or, and or absent, then only then will, only then will the ruling apply. So with the case of an impediment or a mani', then the case is that if it is present, definitely the ruling does not apply. If it is absent, we have to ask more questions. So if you like, it is the opposite of a shart. It's the same like a shart, but on the other side. A shart, if it is absent, then definitely the ruling is absent. Al-mani, if it is present, definitely the ruling is absent. If a condition is present, it doesn't mean that the ruling is present. And if an impediment is absent, it doesn't mean that the ruling is necessarily absent. And the examples are easy to understand. Sometimes if you get yourself twisted with the definition, then it's easy to think of the examples. So an example of an impediment 
in inheritance, for example, is being of a different religion. But just because you're the same religion as the person who died, okay, today somebody dies and I go to his janazah, do I inherit from him? Why not? We are the same religion. Because just being the same religion doesn't necessarily mean that you inherit from